All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small, we're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you. And we will talk to you soon. On this episode of After the Battle Campfire, I talk with my buddy, Chris McCollum. Chris grew up in the Northeast and ended up here in San Antonio, just like myself. We talk about his time in the Navy from being in during the Cold War to closing down Subic Bay, which was a premier place that sailors wanted to end up. And we talk about the time his ship got bombed by a Navy pilot. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. All right, we're back again, and today I get to talk to my good friend, Chris McCollin, who I met, what, six, five, six years ago during the Chiefs season? How many? Five. Yeah, five or six years ago here in San Antonio. Yeah. So Sounds about right. Chris is a retired Navy Chief Petty Officer, uh, spent his whole time on active duty. So say hello, Chris. And... That Hello. Is a beast. How y'all doing? Thanks for having me, Tommy. <laughs> no problem. Thank I know we've you. been talking about this for a while. <laughs> so uh, let, let's get right into it. Where did you grow up? I was actually born and raised in a state that most people have never been to. Uh, I was born and raised in Vermont. Vermont, really? Yes, sir. I knew you were an East Coast guy. I didn't realize you were... A, a Northeast Yankee, Coast Yankee. guy. Yeah, a true Yankee <laughs> who yeah, ended up in Texas. Yeah, well, so you know, we don't get snow down here. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of um, snow, growing up, were you always into the military or was that something that came up? No, actually, actually not. Um, growing up, you know, just running around with your hair on fire, doing, you know, snow things, uh, what, six months out of the year almost. You're talking, you know, getting snow in October and it's staying until almost April. So, you know, a lot of sledding, snowball fights, uh, later teenage years, you know, got into skiing and stuff like that. So, you know, growing up, you know, I think in 77 or so, we moved to a, the house my parents ultimately sold to move here. Uh, we had about five acres. So we, you couldn't keep us inside. So much different than today, huh? Absolutely. And I was actually discussing that with a friend last night who still lives up there. Um, she said her 14-year-old basically just stays in his room and plays games. <laughs> well, you know, and we'll get into that because you you had a lot of time in the Navy where you saw a lot of different changes. So I don't know, maybe yes, in sir. some ways playing games may be more helpful now going into the military than not. So Perhaps. now you... You, uh, when did you guys, did you guys move down here before or after your parents or before or after you joined the Navy? 
We actually, this, my last duty station, which we'll probably get to later was Corpus Christi. Oh, okay. I was on the, uh, the Admiral staff for mine warfare command. Oh. And with about a year left, we decided to, to buy up here, um, for various reasons, but, uh, you know, most times a storm hits Corpus, where's everybody come up I'm by 37 to San Antonio, you know, we're also known as military city USA. So it made perfect sense that we retire here. <laughs> right. So now the reason, the reason why I asked that was because you said your parents ended up moving down here. Yeah. Okay. They moved down but here the same year I retired from the Navy. Oh, okay. Okay. That's what I was trying to figure out. So let me ask you this growing up in Vermont, which again, has that big, um, early American history. Were you absolutely did your, was your dad, any of your grandparents, uncles, military? Uh, there were first, I'm first generation American. All my, my in-law or all my, as they say down here, kin, um, my parents are actually British. They were born and raised in England during just prior to World War II. So they emigrated from England in the 60s to Canada and then ultimately down to Vermont. And they were in Vermont, I would probably say about 40, 50 years or so. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't, I did not realize you were a first generation child of an immigrant family. I was. Like I said, both mom and dad were born in Britain. Uh, I was the first American in the family, I believe. And then, you know, my two brothers. So, That's interesting because with your last name, I would have figured it was more Irish or Scotch than. Well, they were born and raised in England. We found out in recent years that we're more Irish than we are. I mean, my dad used to say we're a Heinz 57. We've got a little bit of everything in Europe in us. So, but, uh, you know, nationality wise, they were born and raised British. Oh, okay. So you guys, um, your parents settled in Vermont out of all places. I mean, I guess it's kind of like England in a weird way, weather-wise. Cold, wet, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, did, what, was your, what was your high school years like? What was your impetus to start looking at the Navy? Um, I started playing trumpet when I was about fourth grade. Um, and I played that until about eighth grade. And I was really kind of a band geek. Uh, started with trumpet, went to baritone, ended up on, believe it or not, marching tuba. Um, never played the sousaphone, the one that wraps around you. It was more like a marching tuba that sits on your shoulder. Oh, okay. um, so I was heavily into band all the way through my senior year. And then uh, about halfway through my senior year, I, I got out of band. But uh, I knew in about ninth grade that I wanted to, to join the military. My dad was a um, police officer. Uh, he was in printing for years. And I think when he was about two years older than what I am now, <laughs> he was offered a full-time position as a, as a police, uh, police officer in the town we lived in. So he basically retired from printing and started working out and went to the police academy at 55 years old. <laughs> wow. So was, I take it you had a fairly small town then? Uh, more cows than people. Okay. That, uh, we don't have any, we have no stoplights in my town. Uh, we have two flashing lights, one at a train crossing and one at the rec center to warn people to slow down for kids. But yeah, it's, if, if, 
if I say three to 4,000 people, I'd probably be, that'd be upscaling it major league. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So was your high school, like one of those multi-town high schools yeah. where people come yeah. from all over the County? It's, it was called uh, union high school, Brattleboro union high school. Uh, it had about nine towns that, that filtered into it. But even with nine towns going into it, it pales in comparison to down here when they graduate, you know, 610 people. Yeah. My graduating class, if I'm not mistaken, had about 250 people. Okay. So not horribly small, but not big by any means. Yeah. We weren't, you know, we weren't changing the population sign on a flip chart by any means, but we were, I, I want to say it's either the second or third largest town in Vermont um, where we went to school, Brattleboro, which is about eight miles north of Vernon. Um, the one thing Vernon was kind of infamous for is we had the Vermont, uh, Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant was in Vernon, (laughs) right on the Connecticut river. (laughs) Wow. So growing up, did you, um, as you said, you like had an interest in joining the military younger. Did you, because you're in new England at that point in time, did you guys do the whole monument and, you know, Plymouth rock, see some of the old battle sites? growing up um there's a place about 30 or 40 miles from brattleboro called bennington there's a big battle that took place during um the revolutionary war over in bennington so we'd been visiting like bennington we'd go down to massachusetts because it's nothing for us to get to massachusetts it's like going to austin um you know we'd go down plymouth rock which is nothing more than i don't know if you've ever seen it but it's a big rock in the ground and then it's just got a a fenced off area around it. And I mean, wow. (laughs) Um, I didn't, didn't really go to the USS constitution until after I was in the Navy, but uh, you know, we didn't dwell a lot on, on monuments and stuff like that. Um, Just, I mean, it was just a lot of time of, you know, when you weren't in school, you were out just raising cane out in, in the country, trying to be a country boy. <laughs> so there probably wasn't much difference between uh, you when you were growing up doing what you do and what kids down here in Texas would have been doing around the same time out in the country. Just a yeah, little bit pretty much. climate change. <laughs> you know, a lot of we had a, a stocked fish pond right next to our house. So a lot of fishing for rainbow trout. Um, we'd go, you know, my dad got me into hunting for a while. Uh, was your passion? So we would actually, uh, would actually, uh, go hunting in November. I believe it was November time frame. I remember snow on the ground and whatnot, but we'd go out there and freeze for about three, four hours, sitting, sitting near a tree, waiting for a deer and see nothing and then pack up and go home. And then see them all up on the ridge when when the weapons were were uh, on, uh, you know, they're smart, unloaded they and put away. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, pretty much waving to us, you know. So let's jump to your uh, to when you decided when you finally said not just I want to go into the military as when I get older, but when you said it's time to go talk to a recruiter. Are you going to be one of the many people who have been on this show? And mind you, we've only had 15 who were, the Navy was not my first choice. 
<laughs> no, um, actually, my father told me he would not sign me into the Army nor the Marine Corps. Um, so that pretty much left me, you know, being a Coastie, a Navy guy or the Air Force. And I, like I said, around ninth grade or so, I, I think I started really thinking about going into military. Um, you know, you can't sign till you're 17 with parental. Well, it's funny because October 15th of 84, I went to go sign up and the recruiter came, told me to come back when I was 17. And I went back four days later, <laughs> a couple of days after my birthday and my parents signed me in. So did you not ever consider the, um, the Air Force then? No, no. So it was always In hindsight, I mean, maybe it would have been good, but, uh, you know, cause I mean, let's face it, we all know Air Force folks and we know the Air Force takes care of their people. Yeah. To a certain you know. extent. That being Well, said, I mean, like, like the other day when we met with some folks, you know, we had described how, you know, they have specialties for everything. <laughs> yeah. Especially in my old rate, uh, everything's a specialty. Absolutely. Um, so going in, did you, again, I completely understand your time in service in your early years was pre-internet. So how did, did you have any idea what you were getting yourself into anything about the Navy? I had a lot of illusions of grandeur, um, you know, growing up with British parents, especially my dad, uh, heavily into James Bond. I was talking about maybe becoming an IS with the idea that I was going to be, you know, Mr. Spy man, <laughs> which an um, IS is an Intel specialist. Intel right. specialist. And basically the most spying they do is they sit behind about a four foot thick door uh, with no cell phones or anything in a skiff. And that's their life. So little did I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, as usual, you know, the needs of the Navy. Um, mysteriously, I didn't qualify to become an IS, but they were like, you could be this, 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 and this. And I thought, well, radium and sounds cool. So began the journey, <laughs> you know, so, guaranteed, guaranteed uh, radium in a school after successful completing a boot, completing boot camp. So now when, um, when did you actually ship out? Uh, I joined October of 84, nine months of delayed entry. And believe it or not, I shipped out 10 days after high school graduation on the 23rd of June in 85. So 85, we had San Diego, great mistakes, or Orlando. I'm right. going to say you went to Orlando just because no one else on the show has. Uh, as nice as that probably would have been, uh, I went to summer camp in San Diego. Right okay. next door, as, as, as you've discussed in some of your other podcasts, um, right next door to MCRD and the airport. Yes. And I can tell you, I think I've, I think I've shared this story with you. I met a guy who was an RDC. He was a, I think he was an HM1 when I knew him, who would tell the old, I take that back. It was a Marine Sergeant Major who would tell the old story of back in the day in the eighties, before they shut down San Diego off of the Navy, they would catch Navy guys trying to escape from um, Marine Corps boot camp. And they would talk to the Navy and be like, Hey, can we keep them here for a few days? And there, conversely, really there was also, 
Conversely, there was also the guys that, uh, you know, first time away from home, got on the wrong bus and ended up at MCRD for about a week till they realized this wasn't Navy boot camp. This is Ooh. Marine Corps boot camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was odd because as a kid, I was a sea cadet and we did a two week thing down at uh, NRD or not NRD um, boot camp for a little <clears throat> sea cadet thing. And okay. You didn't realize until you were there exactly how close MCRD was. Oh, they're, I mean, they're, they're complete shared gates. Absolutely. And when we were running, you know, you'd be running the dirt, dirt area behind over there on, uh, you know, whatever they called the, the RTC side. Um, they had pretty much like a dirt track off closer to the airport. You'd be out there running that and you could hear the Marines just getting reamed. And it, you'd look at each other and be like, I'm so glad I'm not over there. <laughs> so you were going to, through boot camp in what, 1985? Yep. So we're still at that point in time, we're still playing the, we could be nuked at any minute game. I think I'm we're still the, playing the cold war game. Yeah. You know, Russia's the bad guy, you know, they're making all the movies. I don't think I was know? in high school yet. So I think we were still doing duck and cover drills underneath the, um, possibly underneath our, our desks and, well, I know your favorite documentary ever made had already been filmed. Which one? The, you know, the Navy documentary, the, the recruiting tool of the Navy from 86. From 86. Top Gun. <laughs> oh, Top Gun. Okay. I was thinking, uh, I joke with uh, Shep about the documentary of Navy SEALs with uh, Charlie Sheen. Oh, yeah. Another documentary. <laughs> yes, a very, very accurate documentary at that. Yeah, I, I've had very limited run-in with, with the boys in green, but uh, yeah, they they are very unique. <laughs> so let's talk about um, you leaving home. So what was that like? Again, your parents first got here, your first generation. <laughs> And right. your dad knew he wasn't going to put you into a ground combat element. So obviously there was some discussion there. What was it like when you came home and said, Hey, I signed up and they were actually there with me. They had to sign me in. Oh, okay. Because at okay. the time I was only 17. I'm like, Hey, let's go talk to the recruiter. I want to join the Navy. And they were fully supportive. So what was it like on the day you left? You know, that was like 36 years ago. <laughs> I mean, did, 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 were they, were they encouraging did, or did you just show up to maps by yourself? Oh no, no. Um, they took me up to the recruiter, recruiter and being Vermont is Vermont. I mean, we didn't even go to the maps in Vermont. We had to go to Manchester, New Hampshire. Oh, wow. So we went over to Manchester, New Hampshire and pretty much got, you know, see you when I grow up type of thing and hugs and kisses and whatnot and some tears and, in a hotel, I went for the night, and then next morning we were on a, a plane to wonderful sunny San Diego. Yep, which must have been a very very nice. Um, what's what I'm looking for here? Very very good knowledge that you were going to be in October in San Diego and not in New England. Yeah, I mean, but you got to remember it was June. Oh, that's so right, June. I'm sorry. Yeah, here, here I was. I was still there in October. I spent about eleven months at Naval training between RTC and NTC, I spent about 11 months in San Diego and 32nd oh, okay. street. Um, 
you know, we classed up for boot camp. I mean, it was all, you know, sunshine and roses till, you know, you step foot at Lindbergh field and standing out front with that envelope full of stuff waiting for that bus to pull up. And then it was, you know, it, it hit real quick, you know, feet on the, what is it? Feet on the little footprints. And <laughs> yep. every branch has their version of the Marine Corps yellow footprints. Absolutely. So, um, speaking of which, I, I get that it's a bus ride. It's probably a five, 10 minute bus ride, depending on traffic to get over. Yeah. To, you go uh, up by Point Loma and then you go up and in and you get to the processing center and whatnot. And it's not that long at all. So you get there and boot camp starts. Did you have any preparation for what was about to come? Well, once, like I said, being a band guy, um, I already knew how to march. Uh, my band director, we were, we were a pretty good band. Uh, my freshman year, we actually got invited to march in the Macy's day, uh, Macy's Thanksgiving day parade down in New York city. Um, our band was, we were on, we were on lock and our band director was, I would probably say on par with any drill sergeant or, or company commander the Navy could put in front of me. (laughs) Yes, the prestige. I forgot about that. I wonder how many people actually um, kind of go marching band. Maybe good if I go into the military. Well, it was funny because a lot of people asked me, you know, were you in the, the drill company where they do the, the um, you know, the. Oh, the performing companies. The performing company, the 900 series companies. Uh, I don't remember ever getting asked if I knew how to play an instrument. Maybe I zoned out during that portion of the night, but cause I mean, you're getting well, to San I, Diego at about th- maybe midnight, 2 AM, something like that. So, you know, I was actually in one of the performing companies. Um, okay. and so people understand, I think the Marine Corps, I think all services have a set of performing companies in the Navy. You have your regular series companies and you have your like Chris said, your 900 series, which are typically, if I remember right, three, um, three, three sets of recruit companies that do specific things. I was in state flags, which was hilarious Mm -hmm. because I couldn't march worth a shit and was an alternate (laughs) to an alternate. Uh, But from what I learned later, my recruiter hooked that up. Oh, really? Yeah. That was something that he knew I was going to be going into one of those before I even left. Wow. But uh, well, I don't want to, I'm not going to say his name, but my recruiter couldn't even spell recruiter. Uh, I pretty much filled out the paperwork. He was a second class gunner's mate. And I'm surprised the guy knew how to breathe. <laughs> he just needed those bodies. But so in the uh, Navy, you have your state flags, which is uh, guys who walk in holding state flags for the mm-hmm. end ceremony. You have the band. And, and I you think you had the choir that was with the band. So band, choir, and then you right. had your the music, the music portion of our show. <laughs> yeah. Then you had the drill guys who would come out and do the crazy, with like the, weapons. The, silent, the Marine Corps silent drill team. That Absolutely. Stuff. Flipping right. rifles left and right. And Thank God I wasn't involved with that because I probably would have killed someone, if not myself. Those things are, those well, guys spent a lot of time working on it. They're starting to, they do that in high school now. So a lot of these ROTCs in high school or junior ROTCs, they, they've got some guys and gals that can whip those weapons around pretty nicely. Nice. Nice. 
So you, um, you're there. You're not one of the special companies, which to be honest with you, there was nothing really special about it. You, <laughs> um, what was I going to say? So you get there, you get in a typical Navy boot camp was classroom instruction, marching and some PT. Did it, back then, not a negative, but the height weight standards were a little bit different. Yeah. So was, was, um, physical fitness a big thing with the Navy back in mid eighties? Um, to get you in and yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, a lot of, you know, height, weight standards and whatnot and understand, you know, I was 17 years old. I remember looking at it and they were like, for your height, you can weigh a maximum of, I think, you know, 203 pounds. And I was like 155 pounds at the time. And I was like, Ooh, I'll never see that. <laughs> so <laughs> no, what, what I meant by that though, was there, was the PT, uh, I, I don't want to say that our PT was rigorous, but w- was there a lot of PT involved? I would Other say we, downs. well, you know, marching party is it's, it's its own thing. Um, you know, those evenings you got to, those intimate me, evenings at 11 PM, 2300 that you got to spend with the seals out on the parade ground for two hours was, was absolutely lovely. Um, I went to one of those <laughs> for some stupid reason, but, uh, all in all, we probably PT, you know, average three times a week in boot camp, I think. Okay. So not that bad. You know, running, you know, basically preparing you just take the PT test, I would think, you know. Yeah. I, I think that's what basically boot camp in itself was just, just to make sure that you guys, anyone who goes can pass the PT test. Right. Now, and our company commander, he, he was a, an engineman chief and I would like to say he was like on us, but he really kind of was, I don't want to say a softy either. um, And I won't say his name, but uh, he used to get our sister company's company commander to come in and beat the holy dog snot out of us. I mean, bulkheads were sweating. (laughs) See, I don't think people realize that um, when it comes to the Navy, because we don't have an obstacle course training. We don't have three, four, five mile runs. Right. We don't have a crucible. We don't have all that in but boot camp. We, right. But there's very little difference when a company or a group of people screw up and they take it out on the whole company. Oh, yeah. I, it, very, very similar to what you would see in the Army or the Marine Corps as far as that behind closed doors. We are going yep. to rectify the situation. Yeah. And typically because we have to rectify it, we are going to use some physical coercion to. Absolutely. Absolutely. So nothing gets your attention like six inches. So one of the, one of the things I hear from a lot of people who are like, Oh, you were in the Navy. So that means you're a really good swimmer or I want to go in the Navy, but I can't swim. Right. The only part that I remember that really involved swimming was that one pool day. And all you got to do is basically get from one end of the pool to the other in uniform. Jump off the platform and float. Yeah. So how did you guys have any people who lost their shit in uh, on pool day? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of the I'm going to use the term kids, you know, some of the recruits, kids, if you will. They're from the city. 
you know, they don't get a lot of pool days. You know, their summertime relaxation is popping a fire hydrant. Yeah, you're not swimming in a fire hydrant. So when you get put in a 12 foot pool, you know, I grew up in the water. I was I was on swim teams and dive teams and I spent every waking hour that I could in the swimming pool. So I was like, bring it on. You mean we get to go to the pool today? All right. It's a resort day. You know, <laughs> I like that idea. Um, so at some point in time, because I always have to ask this. Typically, I think it's after pool day, they march your asses over to this little building, uh, hand you these things that are called gas masks and stick you in the gas chamber. Absolutely. Um, more than likely, I'm assuming coming from a small town in Vermont, this is your first exposure to gas. Oh, yeah. Well, what is it? CS gas or whatever it is? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, there wasn't a whole you... lot of uh, practice from the police officer and the family on, on gas. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I didn't even think about that part. So um, how was that experience for you? Oh, you know, you, like everybody else, you had to embrace the suck, you know. It was fine until, you know, it was your turn to take the mask off and recite the alphabet or your 11 general orders or whatever. Did you uh, lose your shit? Uh, define lose my shit. Try to get out? <laughs> no, no, I hung in there and I mean, I couldn't see nothing. And, you know, you could feel everything running down your face. But, you know, it was just embrace the suck. You knew you had to be in there. You knew, you know what good running out of there was going to get me. So it's great comic relief for the company commanders. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just like what are you and I have experienced in these past six years and what we do and in certain months of the year, I mean, it's hysterical, you know, back then it was absolute suck, but now it's like, Especially because, I mean, we've been out during these last six years, but we still expose ourselves to uh, willfully, willfully, happily, happily. (laughs) I look forward to it. Absolutely. Uh, So obviously, I'm going to make the first assumption that you made it through boot camp on the first pass. You didn't get rolled back. Never got rolled. Thank God. Um, You know, were there some hard days? Yeah, there's hard days in anything especially 17, first time away from home. Um, my parents remind me now and again, there's, there's been phone calls home. You know, I messed up, please come and pick me up. <laughs> but everybody has those days in, in anything. So, I mean, all in all, you know, I'd say you make friends in boot camp, but it's more like, you know, we've talked about this in the past where it's more like a, a military acquaintance versus yeah. friend. Um, I mean, there's nobody I keep in touch with from 36 years ago. You know, there are people from my first ship that I keep in touch with, but as far as boot camp goes, I think the last time I saw anybody in from my boot camp company was in a bar in Subic Bay, Philippines back in the nineties or eighties. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know that the idea of the boot camp you create long lasting friendships is as no. accurate as people want you to believe, but I do believe your first command and maybe even your a school, you could. Absolutely. Um, so graduation day, did your parents come out for that? No, no. The so only military you... thing my parents could actually afford or manage to make it to 
Um, believe it or not, when I pinned Chief, they couldn't make it. They couldn't make graduation for boot camp. They actually made my retirement here in San Antonio or I in Corpus. I would hope they me. would. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's a nice thing, especially, yeah. you know, my dad at this time was a chief of police. I was a chief and I used to pick on him saying I made chief before you did. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, Chris. So you, um, you graduate boot camp. This is mm-hmm. what now? September mid- 3rd of, uh, September 3rd of 85. Okay. So Summer's ending. Did you go home and take your two weeks or did you just go straight? Absolutely not. Graduated boot camp, walked right across the bridge off the RTC side to the Naval Training Center side, reported for RMA school that Saturday or Monday or whenever it was. So how long did it take you to class up? I think I was lucky. I think we classed up immediately because the RMA school back then they used to try to send you. Now, granted, now it's it's a given where you're going. You know, the Navy's infinite wisdom, they they closed summer camp San Diego and the luxury resort in Florida. And now you go up to mistakes. But, you know, back then they tried to send you, if I'm not mistaken, they tried to send you to the boot camp that was closest to your A school. So, you know, there was at least five or six of us from my boot camp company that went to RMA school. And a lot of them stayed in San Diego because there was other A schools there. Yeah, I mean... Uh, again, like with me, uh, there was still all three boot camps. I grew up in Southern California. Hospital, Hospitalman uh, A School is in Great Lakes and in San Diego at that time. And you went to Great Lakes, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, the, the Navy does not have infinite wisdom. The Navy thinks it has no. infinite wisdom. And yeah. we'll, yeah. we'll find some of that out this week. Absolutely. Um, that being said, so you get to RMA school. What is the, at that back then, what was RMA school's length? I, I want to say it was 14 weeks. Oh, okay. So it was a long one. Yeah. And if we do the math, I started September 3rd and I graduated December 6th. So is, is that 14 weeks, (laughs) 12 weeks, 14 weeks, 12 to 14, somewhere in there. Yeah. 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 So uh, just. As a to get the jits of it, I'm assuming back in that time frame, RMs had to have some sort of clearance. For school, I don't know. I don't know if you had an interim like confidential or something like that for school. Definitely, you know, when you get to your first command, you know, I spent, well, we'll get into that, but yeah, when you get your first command, that's when the stuff really starts. But they start doing your clearance as soon as you start going in because yeah. it takes about a year to get a top secret clearance adjudicated and background checked and all that. So what did, without going into crazy detail, what did RMA school entail? Were you an operator? Were you a me- like working on the equipment? Did you learn how to no, operate? No, we don't. We don't. There are some pieces of equipment that we would operate on, but that was a follow on C school, um, you know, for an NEC Naval enlisted classification code. Um, RMA school was, you know, just your basic nuts and bolts theory, some practical, or as you guys call it in the Corman world clinical, um, you know, you were learning the equipment, you were learning what this does. You were, Believe it or not, learning how to type. 
because there was a lot of people that got, it sounds stupid, but got put on typing remedial. You know, the course of instruction could be over, but if you couldn't type the pre prerequisite amount of words per minute without minimum mistakes, you got put on typing hold. <laughs> wow. Sounds, um, sounds pretty stupid, but you got put on typing hold. Was that because like things like telexes, which were those teletypes? teletypes yeah. We did everything on teletype. You know, we didn't have the computers that everybody has today, you know, where you can backspace and well, you know, that stuff like that. I mean, when you got on a teletype, you were live, whatever, whatever key you hit is what got transmitted. Oh, wow. Okay. So, but did you learn how to, were you, uh, I'm trying to figure this out, right? Were you both then in that sense, when I was saying operating, so like operating on teletype, but were you also learning how to repair them and no, tear them down? No, we, we don't repair anything, like I said, unless you go to a follow-on C-school for like teletype maintenance. Um, that's what the ETs are for. Oh, okay. So the electronics techs, see, this is the part of the Navy that confuses the hell out of me. The whole um, <laughs> electronic side, because mm -hmm. you, you got computer operators, you got radio men, you got um, information warfare specialists. Right. So it goes all over the place. So I mean, eventually to, later on in my career, I did go to a school that was strictly about fault isolation and finding out where in a circuit's path it was bad. So I could go tell the electronics technicians, hey, it's either this piece of gear or this piece of gear, you know, basically okay. narrowing it down. But we never uh, we never repaired anything. They Those guys go to BWE and extensive schools to learn electronics. I. Uh, I'll change a ceiling fan and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, one of the things about radio men, or at least what it appears is you guys are multi-platform, um, mm -hmm. in terms of you're not just going to a ship. You could go to a, a shore duty. You could go to a ship. You could go to a aviation wing. Were you guys ever, uh, assigned to things like, the teams or some of the expeditionary warfare guys like the CBs? Yeah, actually, um, I had an RM1 on my first ship who was a SEAL. Um, I can't remember his name. I knew he drove a, a sweet Corvette, like a, a really nice, like 76 vet Stingray, but he had spent time with the, the, the teams to get his Trident. And then I think something medical happened. He went recruiting for a couple of years up in Denver. And then he came back to the ship as a regular RM1. And oh, wow. because he had never done anything radio related, he didn't have a clue. <laughs> That's one of the things that we can get into philosophically about whether or not um, it was good to have the SEALs have source rates or not. Because back when right. you and I can actually back up until like 2006. Yeah. Uh, a seal would come in as one of, I think, five or six source rates. Corman, I know. Uh, I think, many yeah, builder. you've talked about this before, you know, Corman, you know, Latrell, Marcos Latrell's a Corman, yeah. you know, Boson's mates. Um, my buddy that my, my RM1 was an RM. Yeah. Um, so, but now, now in after 2006, they come in source rate or if they come in as an accession rate, meaning you literally sign the papers. If you pass as buds, an SO. So, yeah. so it was one of those ones where I think the only rate, 
that actually carried over any value was the Corman rate. Right. The, the right rightfully so. Yeah. Because they're going to be the ones going on to advanced medical care. But Absolutely. anyways, back to the, uh, back to the radio men. So you get finished with RM school, RMA school. You said that you spent about 11 months in San Diego. So I'm assuming yeah. you just went over straight over to your first short or first ship command. No, no. Um, during RMA school, they come in one day and they give you this test that requires a little bit of listening and they give you the meanings of things. And like a dummy, I, you know, you want to do your best. So I aced the test and I got to spend a wonderful four or five months at Morris code school, operator school. So when I be Morris code. So when I graduated RMA school on a sixth, the following Monday on the ninth, I'm across the street in building 94. How I remember these numbers, I don't know, but I'm across the street in IMCO, International Morse Code Operator School. <laughs> and I spent Is from you... then till March doing did it audit, did it ah, every day, you... eight hours a day. Do you still remember it? I can say certain cuss words. Um, I know obviously SOS. <laughs> But that's one of those things where if you don't use it every day, you definitely lose it. So now, how did that help you in your first duty assignment? Going over my the first next? one, no. It kind of helped me on my second duty assignment, my second ship, and it definitely helped me when I ended up, you know, thirteen years after the fact, becoming a, uh, a flyer. So let's talk about your first duty station. So where did you end up after going to Morse Code School? Well, during RMA school, I had actually selected or been selected for orders to uh, Little Creek, Virginia. I was supposed to go to USS uh, Pensacola, I believe, LSD 38. And, you know, stuff happened and I had asked and I'm a firm believer is they can't tell you no unless you ask. So orders got changed and I went completely 180 out and I, I ended up going to Guam. Nice. I, I reported to Guam uh, May of 86 on board USS Proteus AS-19, which is a so submarine an, tender. I was going to say, so an AS is typically, is it a USNS ship or is nope, it a USS? It was a USS. We had about 1,500 on board. Um, they used to call her building 19 because we rarely got underway. And when we did, we used to joke that we had to weld ourselves away from the pier. <laughs> wow. Okay. So what was it like being on? Well, I guess for lack of a better word, a non moving ship ship. Well, don't get me wrong. We did move. Um, we spent a lot of time in either Korea, Japan, the Philippines or Hong Kong. Um, but when we go to these places, I mean, I remember going to Chinhe, Korea and sitting anchored out in the Chinhe Harbor about a mile out for about a month tending submarines during February. Um, if you've ever been to Korea in February. Yeah, I take it. I take it. Vermont seems like a, a far warmer place than Korea. Absolutely. I mean, you're out there and it is absolutely frigid. But when I got to the ship in Guam, uh, May of 86, I think I was on board about a week and did the welcome aboard, uh, I division type thing and immediately went down to that luxurious four months of uh, 
serving up food to the crew. Oh, so my you were mess, mess crank. Crank. Absolutely. Yes. Never been on a ship myself as staff or company. So never had to do that. But that being said, I have heard some of the fun stories about that. You know, honestly, Tommy, it, I enjoyed it. I mean, I wasn't, it, it sucked, you know, getting up four in the morning and staying up until God knows when, you know, seven days a week, you get maybe one day off, but I kind of enjoyed it because we had 1500 people on board and much like we've been preaching, you know, the past couple of years to the, to the chief selects every year, it's a good way to, to network. Oh, I believe, you know, when you're first getting to that ship, you, you meet people that are from other divisions that, you know, they're down there mess cranking too. So once again, embrace the suck, but you know, it's a great word way to network. Oh no, I, I definitely I probably would have tried to network myself out of it, but yeah, I get what you're saying. <laughs> the, um, so the first four months, cause like, again, like I said, I've never spent any time on board a ship mm-hmm. other than a tiger cruise, which doesn't count. So your first four months for you, you've checked in, you're a brand new spit shiny RM, but you're doing the mess cranking as a full-time job or are you still doing your RM duties? Nope. You are sent TAD down to the mess decks and you work for the supply department. I think it's the S2 department. Oh, so you're actually detached from your division then. I wasn't, I wasn't even allowed in the radio center without an escort. Oh, okay. Okay. So that, okay. That makes more sense. So once you get done with, well, and let's talk about what actually mess cranking is. Cause I've heard many different versions of it, whether you're helping out the mess men, which are the guys who cook the food all the I way. I mean, to- yeah. The, the, well, today they're the culinary specialists, but back then the mess specialists, you know, they're the ones that are in essence cooking. All right. It's their job to, to ensure the cooking goes down. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is MSs are also responsible for birthings and whatnot. Like when they go to shore duty, they run the barracks, you know, oh, they okay. do all the ordering. I mean, there's so much to do. So, you know, obviously if you've got a ship that has a division of 20 MSs, they can't be expected to feed 1500 people. So, you know, different people had different assignments. Some people were in what they call veg prep. And you were making the salads and getting, you know, the, the like pickles or whatever they're going to put on the vegetable line ready. Uh, you had people that were serving food. You had people that were in washing dishes. You had the guys, the unenviable task of being in the scullery and you're in there and it's the steam makes it over a hundred in there and you're in there scrubbing pots and pans all day, every day. Right. You know, good weight loss program, but. Oh Yeah. <laughs> You're fresh out of boot camp, but I don't think you need to lose much more weight. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, we um, had some guys that were helping the the bakers at night making uh, cinnamon rolls and whatnot. So it just depended where they needed you. I was just going to bring that up because I know um, my little brother was a Marine culinary version of a culinary specialist, a cook. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about even at Camp Pendleton, they would have almost a 24 hour shift between the cooks and the civilian staff, there was always some sort of prep going on. And so I'm oh, yeah. assuming on board, on board a ship, it's the same way. You 
Absolutely. Someone's down there cleaning, cooking, prepping, or something 24 hours a day. Pretty and much. Onboard ships. So people know onboard. I do know this much about the Navy. Onboard a ship, you get breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then you have this thing called mid rats, which for the guys. Mid rats is working, usually leftover dinner. <laughs> but for the guys who are working overnight shifts, that, that would be, I guess, the equivalent of their lunch. Yeah. At that yeah. point in time. You know, the radio so, shack, which is open 24 seven, you know, some of the maintenance department stuff. Definitely. If you've got, you know, you got to remember we had steam engines, so it wasn't just turn the key and go. So you had the fire rooms, the engine rooms and all oh, that. That's right. Boilers and all that. You know, when we, when we went alongside the pier, I mean, it was, you know, shift power, shore power, you know, so you didn't need the, the engines going. So you finish your, your mess crank time finally show up to the radio room what is a what are you an e3 maybe at the time e2 i was yeah i believe i was an e3 what 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 happens to a e3 who shows up and says hey i'm here what, well they what all knew me already you know they, they all knew me um my first official duty as a radioman on board was to go up on the mast and um pretty much you know, or out on deck and then we took care of our own deck. So we were basically bosun's mates with TS clearances. We were out there chipping the deck, painting the deck, taking care of our own space because we own the O3 level. So come out of mess cranking immediately onto a needle, needle gun, <laughs> a pneumatic needle so, gun. So here you are with a boot camp under your belt. Like I said earlier, spit shiny brand new radio man, radio RM or radio man, a school behind you. And you even got selected to go to the cool Morse code school. How are you feeling at that point in time as you're like, okay, I'm ready to use these skills that the Navy's given me. And now you're out there. Absolutely. Because my radio man, a school is about 90 people. Um, they did a deal where if you graduate, I think the top 10 or 5% of the class, you could get meritoriously advanced. So I graduated third out of 90. Uh, I show up to my ship with, here's my paperwork saying I can be meritoriously advanced if I give another year to the Navy, which I had planned on staying for 20 anyway. So, okay, so you already okay, knew that. Give them another year. What's it going to matter if it's going to give me a, a new rank? Well, this is where, you know, you've heard me say this before where, you know, they can't tell you no, unless you ask. This is where this comes from is I had put in to be meritoriously advanced to third class, uh, even though I was ready to take the test like a week later. Um, I put my request into the chain of command and everybody in my chain of command recommended denial because I was past the time frame. The executive officer was like, the kid earned it. The kid's going to get it. And the next day I was wearing third class petty officer. <laughs> oh, wow. So you go from what? Um, RMSN to RM3 in a matter of how long on board that ship? Five months, maybe. With very minimal time in the radio shack. Yeah, that's where I was going to go with that. So you, do you go from E3 paint chipper to now 
Petty Officer Third Class with some actual radio room responsibilities? Or are you still chipping paint? Well, because we were such a big ship, we had, oh, we had about, like I said, we had about 1,500 people on board with the repair divisions and the repair department and whatnot. And the Radio Shack, I would probably say we had three shifts of about 12 to 15 radio men each shift. So we had about 35 to 40 radio men on board. And I still keep in contact with a good portion of of each one of those guys. Um, There was various tasks that we had. We probably had 15 different things in our PQS books and our our qualification books. So you started off with something as simple as distributing messages because we printed every message and you stood in front of a slot box for eight hours, slotting messages to whomever needed it after the supervisor deemed this message goes to this person. (laughs) Wow. So just for clarity, when you see movies and you see the guys on the radios calling to other ships, those aren't you. No, that that's us as well. Um, Okay. Most of the time, though, you're, I learned this when I got to my second ship. Um, it's usually the, the OSs that are the ones talking on the radios when you see it on oh, the okay. movies. That's, that's you know. kind of what, where I thought that. Yeah, the operations out. specialists. And, and it's not the radio guy doing the, the light thing. Those are, those that are the, the old signalmen. Signal that's a signalman. Oh. And it blew them away that I could actually read flashing light. And I'm like, it's a visual Morris code. Why wouldn't I be able to read it? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, that just kind of caught me off guard too. So did you, did those three rates so coordinate together? Uh, in 99, the Navy's infinite wisdom went from radio men and merged us with data processors. Um, so that's how we became ITs. As far as signalmen, I believe they might have gotten sucked up into a bosun's mate or something along that. I'd have to really look it up because quite honestly, I didn't keep up with it. No, but I mean, but did you guys, uh, you, the OSs and the uh, signalmen coordinate or work close together in your time? Or were they all just because it seems like there was message traffic going back and forth? I don't think we had a lot of OSs on my first ship. Um, You know, we dealt a lot with like the pilot house, obviously, you know, Uh, my first ship, the Proteus, it was kind of unique because being a subtender, you know, you, your primary mission is taking care of those submarines when they come alongside, regardless of what they need. Well, I think the USS Proteus was the only ship in the Navy that had a a periscope up on the pilot house. (laughs) Believe it or not. Okay. They had one in excess for a submarine. They fixed the submarine. So the CEO was like, let's install it. So we had a periscope and there was nothing funnier to send the new guy up at two in the morning with a message for the bridge to read. And the entire bridge crew had their night vision and this guy didn't. And he would slam into that periscope. (laughs) Uh, Guilty. I've I've been there, done that. I learned real quick how to adjust one eye to night vision. <laughs> yeah, the 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 old pirate's patch uh, would have absolutely helped. hand over the eye, whatever you got to use. Yeah. So um, let's talk about being a young sailor and 
being on the Western Pacific edge, which back in the 80s had some pretty infamous ports. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, sir. <laughs> how was your first trip to Subic Bay? Uh, you've probably heard it called the adult Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to go too much into it. No, Absolutely no, no. I don't not. want you to. Absolutely not. Um, it, it wasn't like, you know, I had a senior chief who was probably in the Asian theater for years. He used to talk about Subic Bay back in the sixties. If this, my time in the eighties compared to near the end, or, I mean, it wouldn't even compare to the sixties. I used to hear about, you know, gator pits on the street and they'd sell you a chicken and you'd throw chickens into the gator pits. We didn't have that. I mean, the streets were paved and whatnot, but yeah, it was, it was the wild West, man. (laughs) How, How did it affect a young sailor's wallet? Um, I couldn't be a financial advisor. I'll tell you that <laughs> a lot, lots of money spent in, in the Subic Bay region for various things, mostly uh, San Miguel beer, bullfrog and, and Mojo, which are all drinks there. <laughs> so now how was, uh, how was Hong Kong at that time compared to Subic? Hong Kong wasn't Subic Bay, but it was probably one of my favorite ports ever. I mean, Hong Kong in the eighties was just awesome. Uh, you'd, you'd pull in, um, the Hong Kong Island side had so much to offer, you know, cause I was all about, you know, going around and exploring, getting, you know, uh, taking pictures in the daytime and then at night going out and partying, you know, you get those guys that they get to port and they immediately go to the bar. They couldn't tell you anything about the port you're in, except what the inside of that bar looked like. And I had my times doing that, but I mean, Hong Kong going up to Victoria's peak over to Aberdeen Harbor, going out to that jumbo floating seafood restaurant, going over to Kowloon, which is the China side. And, you know, I mean, a lot of my crewmates ended up meeting Marvin Hagler over there, a old boxer from the seventies and eighties. Oh, wow. What he was doing in Hong Kong. Who knows? But I had a bunch of shipmates that got to hang out with Marvin Hagler all day over in the Kowloon side of Hong Kong. Oh, nice. So did you guys, um, were you a RM3 at this point in time or were you still RMSN? No, I, I was a third class. So I bet you that made a big difference in terms of what you were able to, how much time you were able to spend outside of the ship then. No, not really. Um, We worked a pretty stringent when you have the what we call the guard on board when you're actually doing the radium and stuff. That shack has to be manned 24 seven. So you're on pretty much a set schedule. So, you know, Okay, so there was no Cinderella Liberty for uh, for the non rates. It was okay. You work an eight hour day shift. You have 16 hours off. Be here back tomorrow morning. Zero seven hundred. If you decided to go out all night, that was on you. I mean, there was plenty of days that we were at quarters, weren't underway, yet everyone was swaying in unison (laughs) to include the chiefs. (laughs) 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 It was always the same. It's okay. I'm not partying after shift tonight and you're in Subic Bay for Christ's sake. So, you know, we're not going to party and two o'clock hits and it's like, hey, where are we mustering at four o'clock? 
<laughs> <laughs> so now here's um, here's a question for you. Because this is in the 80s, this is also in the Western Pacific. Mm-hmm. Did you guys play with the uh, with the Soviet Union in terms of? Uh, I mean, you're dealing with nuclear subs. I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have any run-ins with my the other first side? ship? Not not so much. Um, when we got underway, we basically went from point A to point B. It wasn't any of this, you know. Let's go just pull circles in the ocean for a week, just for the sake of pulling circles. We went. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line, and that's pretty much we did what we did. My second ship, yeah, they used to have a, an exercise back then called Team Spirit up off the coast of the uh, of uh, Korea. Our sole job was to watch the Russians watch us. So, a lot of trawlers, a lot of AGIs, the little spy ships that are look like fishing trawlers, but they're actually gathering intel. We've actually had Russian bear aircraft, the biggest aircraft I've ever seen fly overhead. You know, oh, wow. my second ship, we, we definitely had more interaction with, uh, with the Soviet Union than what we did my first ship. So when you were uh, with the Proteus, how long did you end up staying on board? I was on board for almost exactly two years, uh, just over two years. Um, I reported board May of 86. We were tending a submarine out in Upper Harbor, Guam. So we had to take Liberty launches back and forth to the ship. And when I transferred, we were tending the same submarine two years later. And I left in June of, of 88. Oh, wow. So now the second ship, which one did you go to? I went to the USS Reeves CG-24 up in Yokosuka, Japan. So a cruiser. Absolutely. War Horror 24. So now- so now I know from my experience with the Navy, small boys are, are destroyers and frigates. What and big boys are. I would say cruisers. Carriers. I would say cruisers fit into that as well. The small boys or the big boys? The small boys. We, we, we had a crew of 425. Oh, wow. So significantly smaller than the tender. Absolutely. And that was officers, chiefs and enlisted. Oh, wow. Okay. And you got to remember during this time, there were no women. I mean, I think we had like five female officers on the Proteus. They were like supply corps or maybe medical second ship, all men. I mean, it wasn't like now where it's it's mixed company. Well, and the Proteus was a support ship where the, uh, why am I drawing a blank? The cruiser was a, it was a warship ship. that was so, 100% warship. Based off of that, um, and no, not taking anything away from the, the support guys, now that you're on board a frontline warship, was the environment different? Yeah, because we, we were direct support. I mean, we weren't just waiting for a sub to come alongside. We were, we played multiple roles in, you know, now that it's a museum, but the Midway Battle Group. I mean, we're out there with CV-41 and we were we were like the front line tip of the spear type of guys for them because we were there to protect the battle group. You know, a cruiser's job is to go out and watch for incoming four, five, six hundred miles away from the battle group. So we did that. But then we also would sit, you know, 3000 yards astern of her waiting for some pilot to put it in the drink and play lifeguard station. <laughs> oh, wow. 
Okay. I didn't realize that was part of the cruiser's role was the, yeah. um, so the, I'm, I'm making a bold guest here, a uh, not guest guess here that, uh, Unlike the subtender, you had um, air on board. You guys had a, did you guys have a permanent um, rotary wing nope. element? Nope. No. We would pull alongside auxiliary ships like, uh, you know, AEs um, that are now all MSC. They're all USNSs now. But we'd pull alongside and do underway replenishments during getting fuel alongside at a certain knot and a speed. We'd be getting vert reps at the same time. So the helicopters are popping across from ship to ship, dropping stuff on the on the, uh, the flight deck. And then you got the working party that was running stuff back down to supply or wherever it needed to go. So did you do um, unreps on? Absolutely. On the other ship? No, no. Uh, we were never out long enough for one. And for two, um, we would actually... We tied up one time alongside USS Prairie, AD-15, I think is is their whole number. And it was funny because they had they had female sailors on board. Um, why we didn't as a subtender, I don't know. It was weird. Huh. So walk me through your first uh, experiences doing an unrep. Because, I mean, I don't think people understand how important that is to the Navy, but yet how common it is. Well, the radio men were kind of lucky because we were on watch. We were doing radio stuff. So we didn't really, maybe one or two people would go down and be a line handler. And, you know, they'd take that shot line with the monkey fist on it and shoot it across. And then physically you're pulling lines across, you know, they'd put it on a winch, but for the most part, you're out there. Heave ho. <laughs> yeah. And so I, what, what an unrep is, is, the best way to explain it is two ships traveling at speed. Two or more. I've actually been yeah, I, three arrests right. sometimes. So which is an art in itself. Yeah. So you got this massive um supply ship that's bringing supplies out to the battle group. And you're doing whatever, like Chris said, whatever knot they set. So let's say it's 20 knots. There you pull up alongside, much like a mid-air refueling but with mm -hmm. a hell of a lot more people at stake and they're shipping supplies across uh, pallets. Well, of we're food, getting fuel. We're getting gas. We're getting supplies. We've actually done personal trans personnel transfers between two ships while underway. They rig up a line. And I think we put our XO across one time and, you know, devious people we are, they dunked him in the water, but <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> no, they did it on purpose. <laughs> oh no, no. I was just saying, oops to the sir. <laughs> you so, know, um, but Oh, no, I was going to say, so as after the unrep stuff, all of that. So what happens to you guys as far as the RMs? What are you guys doing on a daily basis on board a warship that's different than on board a supply uh, support ship? Uh, communications. I mean, we were always talking with people. You always got messages coming in. You've always got messages going out. The unique, the different difference between my first ship and my second ship we were now responsible for setting up all the radio channelizations. Uh, the OSs did a, all the operating. So they would call down and say, hey, this we've lost this transceiver or this radio. Can you go check it? A lot of time running around. You know, we did crypto changes. 
you know, at prescribed times and stuff. I mean, we were, there wasn't a whole lot of time sitting around just twiddling your thumbs. Okay. So, um, subtenders are fairly large. And like you said, a cruiser is relatively smaller. So what was, uh, what was your time at sea like, uh, in terms of just being out at sea different between the cruiser and the tender? It, it was a, a slap. It was a, it was awakening. Um, when I transferred off the, my first ship, I ended up going home to Vermont because I had circulus overseas travel because I was going back to back overseas. I went from Guam to Japan. So I had the Navy fly me all the way to Vermont. <laughs> I went on leave and then I reported back over while I had missed the ship getting underway, you know, just because of scheduling. So I actually met up with my ship after I spent about a month in TPU temporary processing in, in Yokosuka. Uh, I got on a on a flight from Narita, Japan to Hong Kong, Hong Kong to Bahrain, and met my ship in Bahrain in August of '88. So you were in the Persian Gulf at that point in time. Yeah, we were doing uh, tanker escorts. You uh, exercise earnest will. We were taking and guarding tankers going from the Arabian Gulf up into the uh, the Persian Gulf through the Straits of Hormuz. So I'm assuming on board the tender, you guys did some general quarters drills. Yeah, we did. We did. They, I don't want to say they paled in comparison to what we did on the, on the cruiser, but, uh, you know, we had a, a real time incident that caused us to go to GQ and you get a real quick realization of why you drill so hard. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask is because back in that time there was the, the, was a Stark. yeah, the Stark and then the shoot down of the, Civilian jet. Lockerbie, and then, Lock, Lockerbie, Scotland. No, I was thinking about the one in the Gulf, the Iranian oh, okay. jet. Okay. And then um, there was also the, I forgot what the, the Exercept missile threats. That the was, street. well, the, the, the USS Stark took a French Exercept missile on her. And that's, that's what her missile strike was. What so, was the, what was the concern with the missile sites in, um, in the strait? Of Hormuz, because wasn't that a big issue back then? Yeah, it was. And I mean, when you would get the call, I remember one time we went up through the Straits of Hormuz and we left the Arabian Gulf. And I think it's a 14 hour transit from the Arabian Gulf to the Persian Gulf through the Straits, something like that. You have to be at GQ the entire time. So you're at GQ for 12 to 14 hours, you know, locked and down. Explain, explain that to people what that actually means. General quarters. That means you're at battle stations. You're ready to go. I mean, no nonsense. You know, it gets tedious after a while, obviously, but you know, you're locked and, and locked and ready to rock, you know. Cause I mean, we had you gotta figure on my ship, we had, you know, the, the unique thing about a cruiser is is you can do both air and uh subsurface stuff. We had Azrocks, we had torpedoes, we had missiles we had the the we called it the captain it won't shoot it looks like r2d2 it's it's a seaways closed in weapon system we had two of those we had torpedoes on board with two torpedo launchers i mean we could pretty much do just about anything so and so so general quarters you're ready to go i mean it's not prepare for battle it's 
battle is you are locked down and ready to go so uh, 14 hours which i didn't realize so that means you're pretty much your entire shift on general quarters and then some (laughs) i mean we used to work eight the radium and worked eight on eight off i mean oh okay so you know i mean if you were the supervisor which i eventually made um you're talking maybe about nine hours on and seven hours off because i'd always go up a little bit early that way i had a pass down of what was going on and then my guys would get there and i could pass that on and then you'd stay late to kind of help out if it was needed so i mean limited sleep for those two years i was on board her (laughs) so did you enjoy your did you enjoy the time on board the um, combatant ship as much as you did the uh, supply ship or support ship? I would probably say I, I probably didn't exhibit it because, you know, I'm a, I guess, pessimist by nature. But uh, I, in hindsight, being, you know, whatever, you know, looking back, I, I enjoyed my time on, on the Reeves. We had a great crew. Uh, we had a great skipper. Um, I enjoyed it. Maybe I didn't realize at the time I was enjoying it, but I I've still got lifelong friends that, that I talk to all the time who he's a retired chief. He's up in Indiana. He's my kids call him uncle, <laughs> like a lot of Navy families do, but yeah, he's, I've stayed in touch with him for, for years. Ooh, what? 88 was that 32 years, 31 years, 33 years, something? I don't know. Requires math. I don't do math. So during this uh, time from basically from when you came in in 85 to now, to that point in time, were the surface warfare pins a thing at that point in time? Actually, they were. They're not like now where, you know, the, whenever the Navy kind of came out and said it was mandatory, I, I personally, I didn't like that. Um, when I got my pin on the Reeves, it was a voluntary program. And it was funny because before I, I was, I think the first guy in the radio shack that got his pin besides the signalman senior chief. So before I got my pin, the only people that could sign the radioman or the communications portion of an, of an enlisted surface warfare specialist book was either, I think my senior chief or my LPO. After I got my pin, I was the only one that was authorized to sign the book. <laughs> nice. So were you an E5 at that point in time? I had made E5. I reported on board in August of 88. And I think January of 89, I made made second class. Okay. So after the Reeves, where'd you go to next? Uh, I actually, back in the day when they used to guard three guarantee assignment for re-enlistments. I re-enlisted and, and I got to uh, Subic Bay or QB point. I went to an Admiral staff down there, but I'd be remiss not to mention, we were talking about general quarters um, right. while on the Reeves and it's, it's, it was crazy, but we ended up uh, in October of 89 off the coast of Diego Garcia. We ended up taking a Mark 82, 500 pound bomb on our foc'sle during some bomb exercises. So talk about Let's go back and talk about that. Yeah. Talk about 830 at night and the ship starts to shudder and shake and you don't know why you're going to go to GQ. <laughs> so, you know, it was real life. This is why you train. 
you know, train like you fight type of thing. So was, was this a, a, was this a live ordinance or was this a. It, I think it was inert. Um, we had basically, the battle group was in doing um, bomb exercises and whatnot. That morning we had actually shot a missile and for us, we had, uh, I think it was Mark 10 mod five launchers. So we had twin launchers for and aft. So, you know, the, the gunnels gunner made missile guys messed the decks up back after that morning. And then that evening, about 12 hours later, we took a bomb up forward. <laughs> so what type of, what type of damage was done? Um, I think the record books say there was an eight foot by eight foot hole right up there on the forecastle. Uh, right where just uh, just above where the line locker was. So we had class alpha fires in the line locker and it was a lot of the line that was on fire. But uh, looking, I've got pictures of it and I've seen different pictures of it. If that hole was any shy of 12 foot by 12 foot, I'd be surprised. But officially wow. it was an eight foot by eight foot hole. So did you guys start taking on water or was it just? No, the no, it was totally a horizontal hit. It it. It didn't breach the waterline. Um, thank God. I mean, if I would say if if you were to have to get bombed, we probably got bombed in the most ideal position or section of the ship, because if you go forward, you know, you're hitting the sonar array and whatnot up front. Uh, 20 feet further back, you're hitting a missile house. Just after them, you're hitting the ASROC missiles. Then you're hitting the pilot house. Then you're going to start hitting the stacks that lead down to the engine rooms back aft. If you would have hit the forecastle, you've got berthings back there and all your fuel stores and an aft missile house. So hitting us where we got hit was probably the most opportune place we could have been bombed, if you will. So that's what I was going to ask is how close to the birthing to any of the birthing was it? So it seems like it wasn't very close. It wasn't close to the birthings, I believe. I think there was like a supply birthing up front, but it, it hit the line locker, which the bosun's mates were responsible for. So a lot of line, a lot of coiled up ropes and whatnot. So now we took a lot of damage. We, I actually had lost an antenna that was due for an annual check. So it's at the bottom of the Indian Ocean somewhere. Um, a lot of my long wire antennas that came down from the, the mast, they were severed. We took shrapnel damage probably three quarters the length of the ship. I mean, we had, the pilot house was just peppered. Concussion blasted, knocked out the, the glass in the pilot house. I mean, it was, it was crazy. So where were you at when this happened? In my rack. <laughs> oh, it was one of those ones. Well, so I had gotten off watch. I think I'd gotten off watch at about 1500, about 3 PM. Well, yeah, about three. And then we did a little bit of training and then did some chow. And then I did some training with a, a young sailor that was in the rack above me, uh, did some damage control training with him. And I said, listen, we have to hit watch here in about three hours, which means we're going to get maybe two hours of sleep. So let's, let's hit the rack and we can discuss this more when we get on watch. Well, about 30 minutes into shut eye, the ship starts to shimmy and shake because we had gotten hit and it severed the anchor line. And if you've ever seen the links in the anchor, you know how big they are. Yeah. they're. And huge. when that gets severed and you use and lose an anchor, it's going to make your ship rock and roll. <laughs> so were you guys anchored then? No, no, no. We were underway in the middle of the, of the Indian ocean. Okay. So, 
it, it just it caused the, the ship itself to drop anchor sands yeah it's it severed the chain so the anchor wow. i mean it's a what a 30 navy stockless anchor is about thirty thousand pounds so you and sever so them that chain absolutely bye-bye Bye. have a nice day <laughs> so what was your first memory after you felt the the shuddering did you was it like an immediate klaxon general quarters general quarters I I had told the, the 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 young kid that stayed above me that the the seaman apprentice that was above me I said hey Mike grab your uniform start heading up to the shack because we're going to GQ and he's like how do you know and I was like a ship doesn't shimmy and shudder the way we just did and in the dark at night and not go to GQ he got about halfway up the ladder well and, and we went to GQ real quick so. Did you guys, how long did it take to realize, okay, this is not one, this is not going to kill the ship, but two, it's not some Soviet sub that just launched a torpedo at you. Right. Well, I mean, you've got, well, you got to remember too, we're in the middle of the Indian ocean now, about 30 miles off the coast of Diego Garcia, which is somewhere between nowhere and Eastern Africa. So there's not a lot of Soviets over there. (laughs) True. I was going to say somewhere between nowhere and nowhere else. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, You know, I remember being at GQ and a lot of guys going, we hit a small boat and I'm like, did you feel the ship go up and then down? They're like, no. I was like, then we didn't hit a small boat. Some guys were like, we ran aground. And I'm like, do you know anything about Newton's laws of motion? (laughs) You know, had we run aground, your face would be implanted on that forward bulkhead on that forward wall. They're like, all right, Einstein, you're so smart. What happened? I was like, I don't know, but it wasn't one of those stupid guesses. <laughs> and about that same time, the I think the CEO or the XO came across and, you know, we've been bombed. Holy shit. We've been bombed. <laughs> Yikes. I don't even remember hearing about that incident. They heard about it in Vermont because I got a frantic, well, no, I didn't. I called my parents, I think the next day from Degar and they had just been coming home from like the Elks Lodge or someplace in Vermont, you know, one of the only places there is to conjugate. And they were freaking out, you know, because their son was on the USS Reeves and on the news was U.S. warship, USS Reeves was bombed today. That's so crazy. So you, um, you guys go through that, they get the fire out. Are you guys damaged enough where you had to get towed in or were you under your own power? No, we didn't go DIW. Um, you know, all the fire rooms and, and engine rooms and props and all that were back aft. So we were fine in that manner. Um, we, I don't want to say go DIW. We definitely kind of slowed to a snail's pace to do some, some damage assessments. I know I was, you know, up on, I don't think I went up on the mast that day as the antenna petty officer, but the next morning when we pulled in Diego Garcia, I was definitely up on the mast doing some inspections of all my antennas and whatnot. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, wow. I think we kind of just floundered. I don't want to say floundered because it sounds like we were, you know, done. We kind of at a snail's pace took our time. And the next morning, I believe if I remember right, we pulled in Pierside to Diego Garcia. I do remember the Midway wanted to send us help that night and we, um, you know, politely declined letting them know that they had done enough that night. (laughs) (laughs) 
So do you know whatever happened with that pilot? Uh, he was actually, you know, like all carriers, he wasn't ship's crew. He was an embarked carrier, uh, embarked uh, squadron. Uh, I believe he was part of VFA 151, which are um, what uh, FA 18 Hornets. Uh, I, I had friends that from my hometown that were up actually on Vultures Row on the Midway. And I heard various things um, to the, to the tune of, you know, the Admiral went out and greeted him on the flight deck in a float coat and, and PJs and pretty much pulled him up and out of the jet. <laughs> um, I don't think we ever really found out what happened to this cat. You know, I had heard he drove his plane off. to Admiral. Well, I had heard he'd run his plane, a plane subsequently months later, ran his plane off the runway at Atsugi. I had heard he became a pilot for Qantas. I, I don't know what happened to him. I do know there was a copious amount of beer on the pier in Perth, Australia for us from VFA 151. You think? <laughs> oh, man. But then weeks later, there was also T-shirts in the Philippines already made in Subic Bay about the bombing. <laughs> uh, so was this bef was this on the tail end of your um, time on board the Reeves or was this towards the beginning? I had about nine more months on board. Okay. So did you already at that point in time, though, did you know you were going to end up in Subic on the Admiral staff? No, I think um, we hit Australia, even though we didn't think we were going to. Then we went up to Subic and then we ended up back in Yakuska, November time frame. And I think I started negotiating for orders right after the holidays. So I know that when at least what was it like pre 2006 when ships happened to get lucky enough to go to Australia? Most of the time it was to Darwin, I think. Darwin, did you guys ever, up north. <laughs> did you guys ever pull into Sydney Harbor? We didn't go to Sydney. No, we actually pulled into uh, the Midway Battle Group pulled into Perth in Western Australia. Is we it, that's because. Still up north, right? No, that's Western. That's if you think okay. about it, it's kind of like pulling into Alameda. <laughs> if oh, you compare okay. Australia to us, um, right. we actually, because we had bomb damage and whatnot, and we didn't want the media making a big deal of it. We actually pulled into a, a Royal Australian um, Naval base in Fremantle, which is two towns South of Perth. So I think it's Perth, Rockingham, and then Fremantle. So we went to HMS HMAS Sterling and pulled Pierside there so we could get some repairs done, additional repairs. So do you remember what the time frame was to actually get everything fixed or at least cosmetically fixed? Well, how long does it take to put a piece of uh, two inch? I mean, basically we... I think we were in Diego Garcia three or four days and that's when they fixed, put a piece of, of steel over the hole in the deck, you know, two inch piece of steel welded down as a temporary repair. Um, we did some cosmetic uh, repairs to all the vertical damage. I won't say what we did, <laughs> but uh, we did some, some vertical and then we actually spent, I think, about three months, two or three months in the yards back in Yokosuka, Japan, because they had a dry dock up there. So we went into the yards heavy. Oh, okay. So it was a, it was a, it ended up being a big deal. In, in the oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. So now you negotiate your orders. You're now doing what petty officer second class still at this point in time. I am a second class. Yep. I, like I said, I reenlisted for guard three assignment to a location. So the Philippines, I could have gone to a transmitter site up in San Miguel. I could have gone to Subic Bay to the, the, the message center. I ended up on a Admiral staff, CT, a one-star Admiral. I think he was a one-star. Uh, I was at the CTF 7375 battle, uh, battle staff, staff, whatever you want to call it. So CTF uh, combined Commander, task force? Commander Task Force. Okay. So 7375, so. So what's it like for a second class radio man working for an admiral at that point in time? It was cool. Um, I mean, I went to the Philippines for the sole purpose to, you know, be with my wife and son, my eventual wife and son. Um, we kind of th- did things backwards. We had our son and then got married. But hey, I guard three. Now. Yeah. Well, even if the married part is normal. <laughs> <laughs> but I guaranteed assignment for the Philippines for that. No other reason. So, oh, okay. you know, every waking hour was pretty much spent trying to be with the family. You know, there was some days, you know, me and a couple of coworkers did some running around. But you got to remember, this is the time when Americans were getting shot. So a lot, my first, I want to say nine months there, if I, since I lived on base technically, because I was single, uh, we had Liberty cards. We had to turn our Liberty cards in every night by 10 PM or we got written up and that went for everybody from E1 to O10. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. So it was, there was definitely a threat at that point in time. Absolutely. Especially more so, more so up near Clark air force base. You know, but yeah, I mean, they were, the new people's army were taking good, good shots at folks. That was the Marcos days, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So now you well, Marcos um, merged into, I think, Aquino. Oh, okay. Okay. So right after he got kicked out, then um, she came in, right? Yeah, Corey so, Aquino came in. So you, um, like I was saying, you are now a second class petty officer, which mm-hmm. so people understand it's an E5 midway up the enlisted ranks. Yeah. Five ranks up a nine rank ladder. <laughs> yeah. But so now you're also working for a one-star admiral. So it's someone who mm-hmm. I don't want to say has a lot to prove, but someone who's gone a lot farther than 90% of Naval officers do. Absolutely. You're a networking guy. So did you see a huge networking opportunity in this shore duty? I did. Um, you know, I had a, uh, my, my lieutenant was an LDO, limited duty officer, who used to be a radioman. And then I had, I think I had two chiefs that I was working for. And then, you know, a couple of three firsts and then myself, a couple other seconds, you know, all the way down. I think we had a crew of maybe 12 or 13 of us, 14 at the top. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, pretty good group. Um, I don't think I stayed in touch with any of them. Um, from that point, um, we were just inside, you know, Subic and QB were pretty much the same base, uh, basically divided by a airplane as you entered QB. 
So we were directly behind this mounted aircraft on technically the QB point side of Naval Air Naval Station Subic Bay. As a matter of oh. fact, our order said Naval Station Subic Bay. So I used that to my advantage and moved from the QB point barracks down to the Naval Station barracks, which were maybe a football field away from the front gate. <laughs> oh, nice. Gave you a little bit of a a lead to get off base and to get back on base. Yeah, no, no need to drive. I could just walk. <laughs> yeah. So you um, you spend your time there. Are you guys? What are you guys doing as part of this uh, admiral staff? Are you traveling with him when he travels? Or no, no, he would have his travel guys, and you know he had his you know like flag rider and a flag lieutenant and whatnot. And when he traveled, he'd basically just go just him and the flag lieutenant. Uh, we actually had the aforementioned big old door that was about a foot thick and we did telecommunications. We sent and received messages and, you know, obviously he's got forces he needs to communicate with. And, you know, we had a, a warrant officer, a warrant for who'd been in, I think he was maybe, I think he was Noah's sponsor, but we had a, a warrant officer that'd been in the Navy a long time. He was our intel officer and his sole job was to read the intel messages and brief the admiral in the morning. And that's, we called him the command doodler because after the intel brief, that's all he did was doodle at his desk, <laughs> sit there and draw oh, wow. little cartoons. Uh, hopefully someone has those and they're worth some money now. And possibly. So, so what, was, what was coming from a tender, a cruiser, a cruiser that got hit by a, bomb time <laughs> in the persian gulf all of this for a navy a lot of frontline status action how was it being a second class now on shore duty sitting like you said behind inside a vault relaxing <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean we had some interesting stuff happen while i was in the philippines um, the start of the Gulf War started in 91. Um, we were a logistics command, so a lot of ships came through Subic Bay getting topped off for various supplies before they headed out to, to the actions over there in the Persian Gulf area. Um, I remember when I found out the Persian Gulf War had started, we were actually in dental with my son. <laughs> Oh, wow. And I was unable to take my wife, my, my son, because we got married in December of 90. So at that point, I still wasn't allowed to live off base. Uh, so my wife and son, we'd get together every day. They could come on board. I couldn't leave the base, though, because they put a lockdown on the base. Oh, that's true. So you spent, well, the, the Gulf War is such a weird one. I I have my own personal dislikes about the Gulf War. Um, <laughs> like we won too quickly. So it set a bar that screwed us up. Yeah. Since. Well, my brother, um, at this point, both my brothers had joined the army. My baby brother was an MP and he got deployed to Kuwait thinking, oh, I'm an MP in the army in Kuwait. I got an easy job. And here he is processing what? 60,000 POWs. <laughs> that must've been fun. I was like, but, welcome uh, to the service, brother. So the Gulf War, sadly enough, like you said, uh, December, you get married, 
by the time anyone practically speaking would say your honeymoon should have happened, the Gulf War was over. Um, yeah. What was it? January 20th, 91 like was uh, the start of the air war and the yep. ground forces were done by March. Something like that. So yeah. it was, it was a snap war. Yeah. So you didn't really miss anything, nor would you have had a chance to transfer anywhere to go with that. Right. What, and at that point, I don't it? think IAs were a big deal like they are now, you know, in, individual no, I augmentees. So I don't think IA was a thing. So that was the end of the, what I'm going to call the more aggressive period of time that we had where we had Panama, we had Grenada right before you came in. We had the Soviet right. threat. We fought yep. the Gulf War. And then all of a sudden we go, no Soviet threat, nothing. Say what you will about Kosovo, but really nothing big is happening in right. the U.S. military between the end of the Gulf War and September 11th. Yep. What's going on in your world for the next eight years in terms of how was the Navy in that dead time? For me, it was, I mean, it was day in, day out work. You know, I mean, I got lucky enough in 91 when I was in the Philippines to pick up first class. So here I am at six years wearing a first class crow. You know, oh, wow. my, my contemporaries are guys that have been in the Navy 20 years and are 30 years, 37, 38, 40 years old. And here I'm a snot-nosed 23-year-old kid as a first class, you know? So that was, that was a learning experience, <laughs> to so say the least. In, retro in retrospect, um, looking back on that, as far as quick promotions like that, do you think it helped or hindered your advancement to chief? Well, mind you, I didn't make chief till my 16 year mark. I spent 10 years as a first class. Right. That's what I'm um, asking. Part of that was my fault. I probably could have made it at least three or four years earlier. Um, Cause something stupid happened at a follow on school in 95, 96. But uh, I, you know, every year we get these young selectees and I can look back now as the old guy, uh, the past, um, in a way it's good in a way it's bad. I, I don't feel someone, I mean, a couple of years ago, we had a guy that made chief in six years. Yeah. I don't think you have the leadership acumen at six years to be a chief personally. Right. Yeah. I'll agree with you on that. Some people do. I mean, there's always the anomaly. There's, there's the exception to the rule. But for the most part, generally speaking, at six years, you're just getting comfortable with yourself. I mean, if you came in at 17, you're you're not even 25 yet. You can't even run a car. Yeah. Well, and I, I always look at it from the perspective of at six to six to 10 years, you really don't have enough sea stories. And, and it sounds weird to say it like that, but your life experience is your sea stories. Yeah, absolutely. You, you really don't have enough at that point in time, because right. if you have how many on the same note, how many 19 year chiefs do we see at least two or three every year? Absolutely. So I mean, this year is loaded with them. B 
being a six year, six, eight, nine year chief, talking to a first class who's at 18, 19 years, just wondering why you got it is a big issue. That's why I was asking yeah. for you in particular, because you probably thought at that rate you were going to pick up chief by nine years. Absolutely. I mean, at eight years, I was looking at going LDO. I was, I took the, the chief's test at my eight year mark just to, to look at it for LDO. You know, um, my nine year mark, I started taking it for real. And on my 16 year mark, I finally made it. Yeah. You know, so as you're, do, do you think being on the Admiral staff had anything to do with you picking up first class um, at that point? I don't think a lot of that stuff was actually on the test. Cause you got to remember, I don't know how the tests are now, but back then it was, you know, more rate specific than general knowledge. I think the tests now are kind of 50, 50 split. Well, I remember you know, like military stuff. I want to say, I remember it was, um, now it's, I think it's almost half for everyone, but in the beginning, right. so E3 to E4, it was out of the 200 questions, 100 and 75 were rate specific. Right. E5, it was 150. E6 right. became, and then and, E7 know, flipped it. Climbing that ladder, you know, you, you, as we know, you become the subject matter expert. You're the SMA, SME in your rate, but right. you also have to be the, the subject matter expert when it comes to history and uniform regulations and the UCMJ and and all that, you know, so right. that's where I the can see in that test. Yeah. So no, but I, I guess I was wondering from more from the eval standpoint, less about the test. Did, do you think that that played a role? It could possibly have a, a big role having a one-star sign your eval, you know, it, it yeah. might have some significance. Um, the unique thing about the Philippines that I was there, we encountered two major things. Just as the Gulf War was ending, Mount Pinatubo was ramping up. Oh, the so volcano. I was there for the volcano, which would have never hit Subic Bay had the typhoon not come through at the same time. Tell me about this. <laughs> I didn't know that there was a thing with that. Well, imagine going through a, you know, most people here in the States know them as hurricanes, hurricane, typhoon, whatever you want to call it. Over there, they're typhoons. We had a typhoon. We had Mount Pinatubo, the volcano erupting. And because the volcano was erupting, you get seismic activity. So we had earthquakes. So you had all three of those going at once. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so did you guys uh, crazy. do any, did, did the base or the military do any like humanitarian relief for all that? Well, I mean, the first, I think the, one of the first things that happened was within the first week of the volcano erupting in June, uh, the Admiral um, Com US Nav Phil, the, the two-star Admiral over the, all of the Philippines, pretty much said no dependents are staying here. So all the dependents were evacuated out of Subic Bay and Clark Air Force Base. And in oh, essence, wow. that was the beginning of the shutdown of the bases, if you really think about it. I don't think a lot of the operations went back to Clark after June of 91. Because it, it was bracked or shut down, what, in? 92. June of 92, the, the, the 100 year lease expired and we, the Philippine Senate elected not to uh, renegotiate it. So 
the base was closed in June of 92. Okay. I didn't realize that. Okay. So I thought, um, I thought it was later. So Mm -hmm. was that foreshadowing then, do you think? They already knew that it it wasn't going to get renewed? I I think so. And I think it was a, I don't want to say a crutch, but I think the volcano erupting kind of elevated it and up the timeline a little bit as far as getting forces out. Because like I said, they evacuated every dependent out of Subic Bay and and, uh, Clark Air Force Base. We ended up taking in a family from Clark Air Force Base, which subsequently evacuated out of Subic. My wife and son at the time, who probably have more sea time than you do, embarked on the USS Lake Champlain and floated from Subic down to Cebu and stayed in a camp down there and then eventually flew all the way to Vermont <laughs> and oh, wow. spent so we- three or four months with my, my parents. So you actually answered that question, which was going to be what happened to your wife and kids? Because she obviously lived off base, but so because well, by this time we were actually on base, we were living up in base housing at this point. Okay. Okay. But, uh, yeah, so we, I mean, the base lost power, lost water. We had no, no water service, no, no power. We were living off battery powered lamps or, you know, um, Filipinos are, have a lot of ingenuity. So my wife had actually built what they called a province lamp, which is nothing more than a cleaned out mayonnaise jar with lighter fluid, a t-shirt, and you let it. So we had light. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I, I take it that affected all of this affect your job then? Um, yeah. Obviously the base um, has generators and that, but. Yeah, the base, we generated it and whatnot. Uh, The water, you know, ends up becoming an issue. Um, So, uh, you know, your public works folks were really working on that infrastructure part of it. But the only people that were left behind were were active duty. So now were you there might have been some some civilians there, too, as far as like uh, contractors and whatnot. But I know the dependents all left. So in 92, when they shut it down, were you there for the shutdown? Did you help? No, out we had actually, we had moved our command from the Philippines to Singapore. We had opened up oh, okay. uh, in Singapore. We changed our name. Uh, it was some political stuff with the, 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 the Singaporean government. They didn't like the idea of, of uh, one name because I believe it sounded too operational. And we were there as a logistics. So we opened up as Comlog Westpac down in Singapore. Oh, okay. Which and we had left in we, June, June of 92, we left and never looked back. And then I think that the, the base went to Philippine rule, uh, maybe October of 92, but we weren't there when the last shutdown went. Oh, okay. So we have a connection with Comlog Westpac with uh, the reserve center here has a debt that yep. works with them. I didn't realize you, you were actually involved with, I knew you said that you had been in Singapore. I didn't know that you were actually part of that. We, we stood that command up. We were in essence, plank owners. That's what I was going to ask next. So are you technically a plank owner? Technically. Is there any certificates on my wall? No, (laughs) no. So you finish your time with the Admiral now at Comlog Westpac in Singapore. Where do you go from there? Uh, in 95, uh, at, at this point, we have three kids. Um, 
my son was, like I said, born in the Philippines and then we got married and then we moved to Singapore and both my daughters were born. Um, my wife being the trooper that she is, she, instead of taking the C9, which is luxury from the Philippines to Singapore, here she was seven months pregnant and flying on a C-130 in cargo net seatings with me. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Because I had to, I was one of the, one of the guys that was transporting a lot of the classified material. So we had to stay with it, uh, eyes on at all times. So, you know, two person integrity and all that. So me and another radioman flew the, flew on the C-130 and it was funny because they wanted us in our whites. If you've ever been on a C-130, you know, whites is not the uniform to be in. Whites is barely the uniform to be in outside of an inspection. Exactly. Or Liberty. Needless yeah. to say, those whites got put in the trash. <laughs> I think. So where did you go after you, after Singapore though? In 95, I ended up getting orders to Guam. But before I went to Guam, I went to a C school in San Diego. So I went back to San Diego from October 95 to March of 96. Put my family up at my parents' house in Vermont. Uh, they went to school up there at the elementary school. So they had some a semblance of normalcy and allowed me to concentrate on school. So, so you're at the 10 year mark at this point in time. Uh, just about yeah, 90, 85 just over. 95. Just over. How are you feeling about the Navy at that point? It was, it was by then it's a, my way of life. You know, it's what I was used to, you know, um, you're forced to do a lot, a lot of growing of people, up. A lot of people look at that as a hump. Like uh, if I make oh, yeah. it to 10, I'll stick it out. Uh, or, or if I make it like, to 10, I'll get out. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's what I've noticed. It's the getting first class or hitting that 10 year mark. Because yeah. if you get first class, you're guaranteed a retirement if Absolutely. you do 20. And well, you got to remember, though, I was in there in a time six. when a second class, a second class is high year tenure right. was that, 20. Yeah. So I think what, not the first anymore. class was like 24. Yeah. I think his first so, class was 22. A chief was 24. Senior was 26. And then master chief was whenever they wanted to quit. Yeah. So now you're back in San Diego. You're doing your C school. Which yep. C school are you going through? It was called Comcess Systems Tech. It's basically a tech controller. It it teaches you to your your whole. It was a three phase class. It had uh, theory, which I'm big on theory. I don't think you can do anything without knowing why, the who wet where who wet when and where why of things. So it was. I don't know. Remember how many? It's maybe six weeks of theory. And I mean, they started off as simple as the number line. Here's the zero to the left is negative to the right is positive. <laughs> oh, wow. And within by the end of that week, it was formulas that just I'm not a math guy. And I was just like, holy shit. I got 14 weeks of this. <laughs> Dang. But so, then it goes on uh, to, to practicals. And then it went on to ultimately what we call fault, fault isolation you could pass the first two phases with a hundred percent. And if you fail fault isolation, you fail the course. You fail. Yep. Which we had so a guy this, do. Is this the uh, course that you were talking about earlier where radio yeah. man would eventually isolate and tell the ETs? Yes. Yes, where, absolutely. Okay. 
So how long was this course as a total? If the first 14 weeks was theory. No, I, the whole course I think was 14. Like I said, I got there in October and I left in March, but you have to oh, throw okay, in, okay. you know, two weeks of Exodus for Christmas. Well, we didn't call it right. Exodus, but you know, we know it here is Exodus, but so however long it is, you know, three months school. Yeah. And then back to Vermont, picked up the family and flew to Guam. So you're, you're at your 10 year mark and you're back where you started both at yeah. that school and, and your next duty station. So what was it like being back in Guam? It was, it was different because when I was there the first time I was, you know, 17 years old, 18 years old, you know, living on my houseboat, <laughs> living on the USS Proteus, you know, this time I've got a family. I'm, I've got some rank. You know, I've got experience behind me. We were living up on the north side of the island up in a place called Dedido, up in uh, South Finnegan Housing, which is about three miles from actually where I worked. So it was, I mean, it was cool because you went in there with, I want to, I'd like to say with some clout, but, you know, you had knowledge, but you were still wet behind the ears when it came to what we call as tech control, technical control, you know, fault isolation and stuff. So you're, um, are you back? Is this back at a shore command or is this at a ship command? It was type three, uh, back then type three was shore duty. They counted for sea time type of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, again, no experience with she, yeah. with seashore rotation. So this, well, let me put it this way. Um, when I left the, the Reeves in, in what, 90, never went yeah. back to a gray hull. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. As ship's company. No. Okay. So you didn't have another USS command again. No. Okay. So you're doing your time there. Mm -hmm. uh, probably what? 96 to 99. 96 to 98. Okay. So this one seems like it's a little bit more of a complicated command. Um, Absolutely. What was what was the working environment like? Was it as a now you're I'm assuming you're an LPO, a leading petty officer, or uh, I was. We called it a chief of the watch. Uh, um, usually, the first classes became the chiefs of the watch. Uh, we worked. We had our our communications deck which was all the technical fault isolation stuff. Then upstairs we had what we called the, we called them uh, tape apes, but they were like the message center was upstairs. So they were processing the incoming messages. And then the deck below us was actually a joint, uh, we called it F-talk, um, joint, I can't even remember, but that's where the, the section chief would sit down there. So, I pretty much as a chief of the watch, once I got qualified was running my section of, uh, I think 12 to 14 people. And we had various different sections, um, stations within the, the section that we had to man. You know, we had uh, ship to shore. We had crypto. We had uh, shore to shore communications. Cause we did a lot of stuff with uh, like Atsugi Japan and whatnot you know, circuit wise, but okay. we were working shift work. Um, we worked what we call the 12, 12, 48, 12, 12, 72, I think. 
which so is what, 12 two 12 hour day watches, two 12 hour day watches, 48 hours off, two 12 hour mid watches, 72 off. So three days off. Okay. So you had, you, you had got a weekend every two days. Comfortable. Yeah. Comfortable schedule. Yeah. So did you, um, so by this point in time, you joined when you joined the Navy when Windows came out. <laughs> now, towards the end of this tour, uh, there is a very, very big thing called the internet that has now become popularized. We're coming up on right. Y2K and all that. Mm-hmm. Did that change your job much? The Did the Navy really get into the internet at that point in time? Well, we went, I mean, in Singapore, we had a, a proprietary homemade system type of thing that a senior chief that we had made. So we were unique there, but we still had Navy equipment that we used, but the end result was a, uh, a Frankenstein of a system, if you will. So when I got back to Guam, I had noticed there were no teletype banks. There were no individual teletypes. It was all what we called Navy order wire. It was computer screens, you know, they were the, what were the black screens with the green print? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Kind of like war games from 83 with Matthew Broderick. <laughs> yeah. The, the old terminals. Yes. Yes. But that's what we were working with was that type of computer. So you, but I mean, you, you, it hit me as I was thinking about that question. You've came in pre digital and left after the internet revolution. Totally digital. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you're still an RM or have you guys merged with? No, we're still Radiman. We're still Radiman. Uh, that merge did not happen until I got to flying squadron in 99 when I was flying in okay. 99. So after you get done with this last command in Guam, then you go to this new command where was your next command at? Well, it depends on how you want to classify next command because my next permanent command was in Oklahoma city. Okay. But to get to Oklahoma city, I had to go through Brunswick, Maine, Pensacola, Florida, and then aircraft comm school in Oklahoma city. So let's start with you get orders. You're at Guam, you put in for orders. And uh-huh. you're told you have a couple of follow-on or preloaded schools. Uh-huh. So as a RM1, you are sent to, uh, I'm going to guess first, you're sent to Naval Air Station Pensacola for air crew training. Nope. nope. I go from Guam straight to, in April of 98, or April of 98, I go from Guam back home to Vermont, straight up to Maine for SEER school. Oh, they did that before air school. Yep. Or air crewman school. <laughs> so without going into a lot of details, let's talk about, I mean, I've talked to Shep, talked to yep. uh, Rick. Rick um, I heard Rick. I, I watched Rick's I watched Rick's podcast, I think, uh, last week, and, and I liked his answers. <laughs> so you go to, oh, my God, what is it? Sear Brunswick. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank on the acronym. I know it's uh, Survival, Escape, Resist, Evade. Uh, Uh, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. Escape, that's what it is. So this is where, for lack of a better word, anyone who is considered a 
potential capture risk, be it mm-hmm. frogs, uh, recon marines, special forces guys, air crew. Yeah. Um, we all go. All have to go to basically learn to do their best to survive if they have to get out of the aircraft or if they're separated from their unit. Yep. Uh, escape, resist, evade, capture, and then all of that. And we talked about this in so we're not going to go into a lot of detail. But coming from the non-ground combat side, Mm -hmm. a lot of the people I know who have come from the ground combat side say air crewmen are cool, but they're kind of dumb when it comes to the practical side. Uh, are you discussing land navigation? <laughs> uh, land navigation, uh, listening to the people who are subject matter experts in evasion yeah. and yeah. not yeah. getting caught. Well, so, I had the dubious honor of being, I was, I had the dubious honor of being the oldest guy in my class. I mean, let's face it. Who the hell wants to go to Maine in April, right after a four foot snowstorm and an ice storm that topped all the trees? Wait, in April? Apparently this guy. Maine in April. That happened in April? We were post-holing in four foot of snow. They That year they had had a, I'm going to go northeastern on you here, but a wicked ice storm that topped a good majority of all the trees. So we're up there in, like Rick said, we our, our graduation certificate not only said SEER, but also said extreme cold weather survival. Wow. Which is different than That's... Warner Springs in San Diego. They get seer. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I had a Sergeant major that went through um, up in Brunswick and yeah, he talked about being there in s- September, October with a cold front coming through. I could only imagine April. Yeah. Yeah. So you, obviously survive um and <laughs> How I, I don't know talk- we we had a marine lieutenant who didn't follow directions of of our guides and we got captured i think 12 hours prior to any other group we were still in a group of 12 and we got captured early so we got a little oh, extra wow. love Oh, joy. Um, yeah, we're, we'll leave it there. This is also the 90s before some rules had changed. Well, um, it was the late 90s, yeah. I mean, yeah. but we, you know, being the oldest guy there, the senior ranking enlisted guy there, um, there was a bunch of officers, but our, our basically our CO and XO, in essence, were a couple of Marine Corps captains. So, you know, if it's equivalent to like our lieutenants, I would say they had maybe had three years of experience in the Corps. Uh, captain, maybe six at the most. Six. Okay. Okay. So but I had recommended, I said, listen, as Navy guys, we don't know shit about land navigation. How about we hook up every squid with a Marine and they actually went for that. So we, everybody was mirrored with a Marine to help with land navigation. Cause let's face it. We suck at it. Uh-huh. I, you know, there, there is that potential that being ignorant to land navigation may have kept you from getting captured earlier because you had no idea where you were going. Or following instructions. <laughs> well, no one really does that, do they? Um, well, so you, you, you took something away from Sierra School that you use with the selectees. Absolutely. Um, 
did it leave it? Did Sears School in whole, as a whole leave an impression on you? It was, it was probably so alien to what best, you were doing. Oh, absolutely. It was probably the best school I've ever been to. It teaches you as short as it is, it's only two weeks, but it teaches you so much about yourself. You know, I mean, you have a lot of time for inner reflection. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can believe it. Um, not one of the top three schools I wanted to go to, but I would have loved to experience it. I um, mean, it was, it, it was awesome in its own way. You know, once again, you know, it's one of those embrace the suck. It sucks while you're there, but in hindsight, it was so eye opening, you know, and it's nowhere close to the, you know, Demi Moore, GI Jane, Hollywood Sears school. Don't, don't get yeah. it all convoluted, mm-hmm. but you know. Yeah. And the, the downside with today's, what we're doing modern wise, I, I would like to think it would help, but with what we've seen with people who have fallen who are what we call our enemies right now. I don't know that it, any of the resistance training would have helped because they're not looking for right. intelligence. Well, I mean, the time I went through was still the old, I'd, I call it the old Sears school. I think they've revamped the entire program now to a more so. urban, more urban setting. But it, it amazes me how much information you can get from just looking for somebody on the internet or through Facebook. You know, it just, so many people put so much information up there. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. So you complete here school, then you go to, um, air recruitment. Yeah. School? So I go from, Which you know, nineties so in Guam to so cold back down to Pensacola where, you know, my 30 year old knees are feeling it. <laughs> well, you, uh, at that point in time, you're now looking at early summer in Pensacola in the swamp. Yeah. I think I was down there in May, May through about air crew school was, Oh Christ. Eight six weeks? weeks long. I think, I think it's six weeks. Um, yeah, I was definitely there at the beginning of summer, late, late spring, early summer. So, you, you know, I was training someone uh, who was looking at going naval air crew, uh, mm-hmm. got disqualified because of age. One of the things when I was looking into it, I didn't realize how physical um, or physically water intense air crews. Uh, yeah, it was basically run every morning, swim after every afternoon. So how was that for you? Um, like you said, you grew up I loved it. swimming. I loved it. I mean, I don't. Besides you, I don't think there's a whole lot of people that enjoy running and I'm not a runner, as you know. Um, I had forced myself to train for it when a 30 year old guy with 12, you know, 11, 12 years in the military can outrun 18 year old Marines just out of boot camp. There's a problem with that. Oh, yeah. You know, so I I forced myself to to train so I could, in essence, compete down there, you know, but when we got in the pool, it was like nothing ever changed. You know, I, I've got that innate ability to be able to either go deep down to the 12 foot and push bricks or stay afloat. A friend of mine who's a friend to this day, he's a master chief. Um, we ended up giving him the nickname of deep six. Cause as soon as he got in the pool, he sank to the bottom. 
<laughs> oh, dang. So I, the one thing that stood out with some of the videos I watched while I was looking and doing the research for my friend was the helo dunker and, and those type of get out of the aircraft, which are uh -huh. absolutely vital. To absolutely. Some, helicopters do go down, yep. not regularly, but enough. Yeah. How, how was that scenario for you going through the dunkers? I call it the ride week because you get to do bay ops. Uh, you get pulled out of the bay up to a helicopter. You know, me being me, I found out what the Hilo crew's favorite candy was. So I snuck that into my survival vest and was shaking it to them as I was getting pulled out of the water to show them what I had. So they pulled me all the way up to the Hilo, took the candy and then pushed me back out, <laughs> lowered me back down. Um, you got to do life raft operations. You did the spin and puke, which was it's a disorientation type thing. They just call it the spin and puke. So, I mean, I don't know the real name of it, but yeah, the helo dunker was, was definitely a thing, man. That MD 95 ain't no joke. <laughs> so you survive air crew school. You get your, you get your gold wings. Um, no, you don't get your wings till you get to your platform. Oh, okay. See, you have to qualify at, you have to, you have to qualify at platform air crew school just as a, essence of page 13 entry saying yep he completed necus you can so now you take your, him do you get your ac designator yes i did once i got pinned my aircrew wings okay so you get that that goes with your aircrew wings right right so just for clarity then do you have to requal on all new platforms or is it like a use it or lose it thing it's a voluntary program so i mean I, I don't think it's a use it or lose it. Okay. You know, uh, my actually we'll get to it, but my last command was in Corpus. It was non-flying, but I was still a voluntary air crewman. So I, I kept my wings. Oh, okay. Okay. So now you, um, you leave there and you go to Oklahoma and mm -hmm. you do that, that school. What was it called? Aircraft again? comm school. Yeah. It was just aircraft comm school. Oh, so just learning how to basically do what you did, but. Flight in a mock, a mock setup. Yeah. It, we had a okay. mocked up uh, communication center that was on the jet in the, the, the schoolhouse. If I would say that it was a thousand buttons and various other things I had to learn and know what every single one of them did, I'd probably be wrong, but a lot of, a lot of stuff to learn. <laughs> so now we're talking what we're coming up on 2000. Uh, 98. Okay. 98. I was actually there. I started there in 98. So you get to the command uh, in Oklahoma. What type of command is it? I was at an operational squadron. It was called VQ-4, uh, Fair Conron 4. Um, they classified us as a reconnaissance squadron, but we weren't really. Um, Oklahoma, a lot of people are surprised that I spent five years on sea duty in Oklahoma because, you know, geographically, I don't think there's a lot of water around Oklahoma but it's technically a sea duty. Um, what they did, it was called, it's what the mission was, was called TACAMO. Um, uh, take charge and move out. It was established years prior. I want to say in the sixties, they used to be in Hawaii and I think Bermuda. So what they did is in the late early nineties, late eighties or something, they ended up bringing it centralized to Oklahoma. So we fly out of Oklahoma to each so coast. Was this similar to 
what was it from the 80s? And they, they, I think they had some movies made around it. Looking Glass? Looking Glass is one of the missions they do now. They took that over from the Air Force. Uh, the current modification of the jet allows for a battle staff to be embarked. Uh, the, the jet that I was on, the E6A, we didn't have a battle staff space. Um, okay. But it was, it was a... God, I can't think of the word, but it was like a nuclear level. It's definitely part of the nuclear triad. Absolutely. That's the word. That's what I was trying to think of. We were actually responsible for retransmitting the nuclear execution messages to the nuclear triad. So I'll ask you the obvious question. Did that ever weigh on you? No, not at all. I mean, it's, it's an option that's in our arsenal, you know? And honestly, in my five years there, I saw one actual. And that was on 9-11. So let's, let's jump a little bit ahead um, okay. to that. So you've been flying there for three years. If I'm, if I'm doing the math right, about around three years you've been there. You pick up Chief Petty Officer. Yep. In whatever month that was, August, July. Uh, August July, of 2001. August, 2001. And without going into a lot of our little secret details, <laughs> we train all Navy chiefs in-house at each command to become chiefs. That's what, and Chris and I, as retirees, we've been helping. I've been helping since 2011 when I retired. And mm -hmm. I think you've been helping since before that, right? Uh, I actually, when I retired in 05, I had absolutely no clue there was Navy commands here in San Antonio. Oh, I didn't man. know about the MAs or the uh, corpsmen. It wasn't until uh, TJ Kometz and I met in 2013 at a, a Navy ball 5K. Because like you and I talked, you know, if you were in a chief shirt, it's like a magnet to another chief. Yep. So me and TJ ended up talking and swapping numbers. And then that following season, he called me up and said, the selects are down at the car wash down at the Cove. So guess where I was about 30 minutes later. So I've actually been with the NMTSC mess and I'll say the, the, the MA's mess down at Lackland and, and our uh, NOSC and all that for about since 14. So what's that? Seven years now. Yeah. Yeah. So you, um, where I was going with that was, so you, we train and even retirees come back and train. So in 2001, you are now IT one. Yes, going to I am. I'm an IT one ITC select because in 99, they merged us with the data processors. So I've, I have now been selected to be an ITSI select. <laughs> so during this, we do a little bunch of classroom work, a bunch of other, uh, some physical training, all of that, preparing the mental training, mentoring. Exactly. To on September 15th, get pinned. And typically the night before, maybe a couple nights before we kind of keep them and do some more intensive training mm -hmm. to prepare them for that final day. Well, in your case, much like a couple other people that I hope to get on the show, this is the awkward year because it's now September 11th, 2001, four yes, days sir. from pinning. And Actually six. We didn't pin until the 17th. 
Okay, so for you, almost a week away from pinning. Yeah. What's going through, what happens that day? On 9-11? Yeah, for you. A lot of, oh shit. Uh, I was I mean, in, so how did the day start out? Well, they had actually took all the chief selects, all 36 of us. Well, not 36, 24 of us. There was 36 total with the reservists and whatnot. And then out of the 24 active, I don't know how many air crewmen there was, but there was a good portion of air crewmen. They had taken us all off of flight duty and said, while you're going through chief's initiation from the beginning of August through pinning, you will not fly a mission. So we were doing a lot of office work and doing a lot of the mentoring training fun that we do. Um, that morning, the first jet hit at what, like nine 43 or whatever it was. I think so. Yeah. Uh, my best friend who was a second class who had been with me in Guam, um, had come into the space and he's from New York and he's like, well, they ain't twin towers no more. Kind of, you know, joking and being jovial. Cause at that point, none of us knew it was an attack. We thought it was an accidental what was it, 15, 20 minutes later when that second one hit the other tower? It was a, oh shit, boys, we're about to go to war, get, get your affairs in order. And at that point, they looked at me and said, you and your best friend live on base, right? We're like, yeah, they're like, go home and get your shit. So I was like, well, what about, they're like, who cares? Go home and get your shit. <laughs> like go home so, and get your flight gear and shit? I had a go bag in my car. I had my flight bag packed at all times. So basically I darted into the house, grabbed my bags, kissed my wife, said, I'll be back whenever. And they actually had us sit on a jet for, I think about 12 hours waiting to be launched. And then we ended up not getting launched and went and had to stay in the alert facility. So what are you doing on board the jet for the whole time you're just sitting there waiting? a whole lot of hurry up and wait, you know, trying to monitor message traffic. Cause you got to understand on the jet, you've got, you know, the flight deck where, you know, your, 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 uh, your flight deck crew, your navigator, your flight engineer, the pilots are up there. Then the next workable space after a crew rest area is, is our space is the communication center. Um, so we're right over the rooms and that's comprised of both radio or ITs and ATs, uh, aviation electronics technicians. Then you actually go all the way back to the um, rear of the aircraft where we have two antenna operators. So it was just a whole lot of time spent on the jet. Just hurry up and wait for the word to launch. So are you guys seeing, um, the grounding of all the aircraft. I mean, are you guys able to see that? Through message traffic. Through message traffic, we're getting that message traffic in off the teletype. But as far as, you know, like a communist news network feed, CNN feed or anything like that, no, we didn't have that on board. We had it in the alert facility. And I don't think anybody slept that night because we were glued to the to the communist news network. But um, yeah, we, while on the jet, it was strictly... I think it was like UPI and AP teletype coming across. So you're seeing and whatever you and whatever the command center is telling us via the the order wire. So as you're watching this, what are you thinking? I 
mean, so many things, you know, here we are, you know, I've been in the Navy 16 years. You know, I've, I've had my ups and downs, had various things happen. Never really like a lot of the corpsmen, you know, I respect the hell out of you guys. Cause a lot of you guys have been in the shit, you know, I mean, you personally were there, you know, I never had to experience that. So in an essence, you know, I'm thankful you guys have welcomed me in as one of your own, but I really can't relate to the gravity of what you guys have done. So the whole thought of we're going to war, you know, was like, Oh shit. <laughs> yeah. So did you, um, when you were tasked to go home and get your shit, did, had the Pentagon been hit yet? I don't think so. I think they had said, go home, get your shit. We're putting a crew together. Cause you got to remember Takamo, as we speak, there's a jet airborne right now. That's what I was going to ask. There is a jet airborne 24 seven, you know? Um, so we were kind of a backup to the backup, if you will. Uh, there's 16 jets. Traditionally, two are, at that point, two were always down getting retrofitted or whatnot, but we had at least 14 jets at our disposal. So it wasn't uncommon to have at least three crews out and two backup crews, one for our squadron and one for the other squadron. So that takes up five jets. So you still got, what, nine jets available to you. But yeah, I mean, it was just, what the hell? You know, a lot of unknown. Damn. So what happened in the following days? So here you are supposed to be pinned on the 17th mm -hmm. and all stop or did things. It, it did for about two days and we were all freaking out. Cause we're like, you know, like I've told you in the past, you know, I'm not wearing this shit for a year or nine months or whatever. And having to go through this shit again to be accepted. <laughs> right. You know, ain't going to happen. And sometime, I think we had voiced it to our CMC and the wing commanders and all that saying, you know, listen, you know, my rationale was if we cancel, we're letting them guys win, you know? So I think we went on a, on a stop hold for about two days and then we, we ramped it back up and, you know, Finished we got to, man. yeah, we got to go through it and have our fun and they had their fun far more than we had fun, but. You know, we went through our, our session, if you will, and came out better for it on the other end, you know? So as all of this is going on, um, you're in flight status, you're now a chief. Are you still flying as much as a chief? I actually flew more when I made chief than I did when I wasn't, when I was a, a first class. Um, oh. I had become a, a NATOPS instructor so I was responsible for qualifying people on the jet. So not only initial qualifications for their aircrew wings, but also requalifications. So there was a lot of times I was gone on a two week, two, two week in, two week out rotation. I was usually gone six weeks out, two weeks home. Oh, wow. You know, and then because so I missed the chief's meeting, uh, I became the EAWS coordinator as a black shoe. So, you know, which is what? does that stand for the enlisted aviation warfare specialist, your airways. And, and so for people 
who don't know, there's a running joke in the Chiefs community. If you wear brown shoes, uh, or not joke, but uh, brown shoes are aviation, black shoes are everyone else. So for Chris to be a black shoe and running aviation, aviation enlisted warfare training, it's a little bit backwards. He's a ship guy. He's a yeah, but I missed, but I missed a, I missed the chiefs meeting. So shame on me, even though I was deployed in my defense. <laughs> <laughs> so you're actually spending a ton of time outside the house at that point in time for yeah. a, it almost really is a C uh, command. It was the best C duty I ever had. I mean, five years. And I told my wife one day, I said, you know, these five years went by quick. She was like, for you. <laughs> so let, let's talk about at this point in time, you're at the end of that five years, you're at what, 17, 16 years in? I was at, I think, 18. So it was 2003. So yeah, I was at my 18 year mark. So you're looking down the barrel at 20. You knew you wanted to yep. do 20. Yep. Um, as you just commented, your wife was like, yeah, that was quick for you. How was she taking the, I don't want to say the stress of the Navy, but how was she taking you being on a shore duty, but actually being deployed so much? No, it was actually sea duty. They didn't bill it as shore well, duty. I mean, I mean, right. It wasn't billeted, but. <laughs> right. In, in um, it was stressful. I'm not going to lie. There was some very hard days between us, but I mean, she's a trooper, man. She's, she pretty much, you know raised the kids she raised all three kids and my kids are very give to the community i mean they're they're not sitting under a bridge with a, a witty sign you know they're they're doing the do you know i'm proud of all three of them so she nice. she really did a good job with them you know so now you um like i said you're looking down the barrel at 20 you leave that command at that point in time, did you see senior chief in your future or did you know 20 no. was going to be it? No, no. Uh, they told me I could get a pension and disability at 20. I was going to pop smoke at 20. That ripcord so, was getting pulled at 20. So I take it you go to Corpus from Oklahoma. I was I was actually billeted to go across the street to the functional wing commander uh, right there in Oklahoma City. And because of my away time and you know, various other things, my wife pretty much told me if we can get out of here, we we're going to be all right. So I got on the phone to the detailer real quick and they, we dealt exclusively with the air crew detailer, not the radioman detailer. I was an air crewman. So I didn't have to talk to the radioman guy or the IT guy. Um, I talked to the air crewman detailer and he ended up somehow magically pulling me orders out of Corpus. So we transferred in March of 98, no, excuse me, March of 2003, packed up the house, kids, and we were on a, a seven, a nine hour truck down to, to uh, Corpus Christi, Texas for my twilight tour. So Corpus used to have, well, Corpus does have Naval Air Station, Corpus Christi. And they used to have a little... Uh, they have a shell of it. <laughs> it's a shithole. It's been a shithole since I've been in San Antonio. Um, that being said, so they have an airbase. Oh, I wouldn't go as far as saying shithole. It's definitely have you not seen it lately? Uh, last year, but it's not a. It's a it's a shell of what it used to be. 
you know, yeah, I, obviously I, I it's think, a training base. Yeah. I've seen pictures of it know? back in like the sixties and seventies when it was what oh, I'll yeah. call fully funded. Yeah. Right um, now it's, it's, it's just a shell. It's, it's hanging on. Yeah. Um, so anyways, there's, um, there's Naval Air Station Corpus Christi, and then there's the my the old Ingleside is the word I'm looking for. Naval Station Ingleside, Ingletucky. <laughs> so did you? Because you, I remember you said something about mine warfare. Mm-hmm. Were you flight mine warfare, or were you no. with the minesweepers? I actually was on the Admiral staff. <laughs> I was at Com Mine Warcom. Um, they had just billeted for an operations detachment. So I was one of three chiefs at the upper or one of four chiefs at the operations detachment for calm mine work on. So was this a two star, three star, one star, one star. You like them one stars. You know, you go, you go where you got to go, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, were you back? I mean, you've done Admiral staff before. Was this much uh-huh. different other than just the rank change or. It was I mean, each staff obviously has uniqueness about it because they each have their own different missions. My first admiral staff was, you know, a logistics command. We were responsible for getting the beans and the bullets to the to the ships. This command was we oversaw all the mine warfare. So we functionally underneath us, we had every mine minesweeper. Uh, I think the Inchon had already gone. Uh, we had the HM squadrons, you know, the Hilo mine warfare squadrons. Um, so it, it was a different role and definitely being a chief was a lot different being at a staff than a E5, E6. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was all right, especially what our, our little detachment did. Cause we only had initially, I think our detachment was about 50 or 60 people. And then they branched us off. And I basically was one of two chiefs on a team of 12 that oh, did wow. uh, um, UUV operations, underwater autonomous vehicle operations. <laughs> okay. So I've, I've seen those before. They're kind of like the uh, robot sub type deals. Um, we operated two different ones. There was one called Bluefin, which was big enough to wear probably 1,500 pounds or more, where oh, it, it, was, it was crane operated. You know, you had to put it in the water with a crane and all that. Uh, we split the team into two teams. We had a bluefin team, and then we had what we called a hydroid team. My team, you operated the hydroid. And what that was is it's a 68-pound, 68-inch autonomous vehicle that you program on, on board a vessel. And then you basically throw it over to the side, and it goes out and does its, its pattern search uh, in whatever pattern you created. Oh, wow. So it's true. It's looking for mine. It's, it's looking for mine warfare shapes, you know, mine shapes yeah. and stuff like that. So basically it was, we became sonarmen because we were doing side scan sonar interpretation for mine shapes. <laughs> Yay. So when you're doing this, are you actually out on a sweeper at that point in time? Or are you? No, we were actually, um, we spent a lot of time in Pen- uh, Panama city, Florida over, you know, in dive dive world um doing some stuff out there basically just on small boats a lot of rib rib boat work um we spent some time up in north carolina moorhead city north carolina out of the duke research lab 
uh, okay, up there so in North you, Carolina. Were you guys mainly testing these as like proof yeah. of concepts? Okay. We were doing some testing with the wood. Uh, we worked with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute out of Boston. Um, we did some operational stuff. You know, we did some exercises. I think we went over to Alameda and did some harbor sweeps over there during some exercises. And they put dummy mines out to see if we could find them. Um, the Bluefin guys actually did some ops up out of Finland, up in the fjords. Oh, nice. Which the salinity of the fjords is way different than normal ocean water. <laughs> Oh, because you got the glacier runoff and the freshwater. Yeah, yeah. And, and salinity with these with these UUVs is ultimately very important, knowing what your salinity is, because <laughs> they oh. float different. Yes, I can get yeah. where you're going with that. Yeah. So you you spent your time there, and you gave your time to the Navy. Mm-hmm. So, what was the final conversation about retirement like? Time to pop smoke. Let's pull that cord and go. Did you I get mean, any I, pushback from your fellow chiefs or from no. the command? That chief's mess there was, I don't want to say fractured, but it was fractured. Um, there was a lot of disdain between regular staff and the operations detachment all the way up to the command master chief. Because when we came in, we, we were our own UIC. We made our own hats. We made our own patches. We did our own awards. We we made plank owner certificates. I mean, you name it, we did it. And it wasn't, the. I don't think the chief's mess cared, but I know a certain one person didn't like the fact that we came in and created our own, all our own stuff. <laughs> oh, wow. So was your retirement, were you a full ceremony guy or were you pick up your paper? I, guy? I had a full ceremony. Um, in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have, um, you know, I did it more so to show my kids. Cause my kids at the time were, I think my son was mid teens and the girls were, you know, a little bit younger. So oh, five, I think my youngest was 10 years old. Oh, wow. So, you know, I, I kind of wanted to do a retirement ceremony to show them that this is what happens when you're dedicated enough to stay at something for 20 plus years. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, like I said, in hindsight, I'm probably, I probably would have done exactly what I'm going to do with my current job and leave my badge on my desk and not come back from lunch. (laughs) Let's hope this uh, doesn't get out to your uh, co-workers. (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, I talk about it. You know, my intent is, you know, I'm going to stay. I'm going to work until I retire. But, you know, I don't want any pomp and circumstance. I don't need a cake. I don't need. I'm not that guy that is looking for accolades. I don't need to be given accolades to know what I've done. I go to bed at night knowing exactly what I've provided. You know. So what made you, I know you talked about it earlier being um, military city USA, but what was your ultimate reasoning for coming to San Antonio? As so I didn't to want to retire maybe, in Corpus. <laughs> you know, I was going to say, opposed to maybe going back to Vermont or was Vermont ever oh, on no. the table? Oh. Vermont was never on the table. I mean, nothing okay. against Vermont, nothing against all my friends that live in Vermont. I've just been too many places and seen too many things to go back to that. I mean, 
when I go home to Vermont, as much as things changed, they haven't changed. You know, Vermont will sense. always be that cozy little quaint town that I, I couldn't go back to that. I, I, I'm too acclimatized to be in a city guy now, I think. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So you left the Navy, you came up here. When did you start working for the city? I retired my actual uh, ceremony, which back on the ceremony bit, the reason I wouldn't have had one, I ended up doing, I was talking to a good old retired uh, HMC um, buddy of ours, Greg, yesterday. Um, Greg was staying. I ended up doing everything for my own retirement. I'm talking the 50-50. I went out and got the guest speaker. I went out and got the MC. I did all the music. I practiced up everybody for the watch. I practiced everybody for the flag detail. I mean, I had very limited help. The one one guy that helped me was uh, was a fellow chief, uh, Myman chief, uh, David Hargrove, uh, you know, who's passed away, you know, rest in peace. He's the only one from the entire chief's mess that helped me out for my oh, wow. retirement. So, you know, I was on the Lexington on that, uh, you know, the, the hangar deck at the Lexington with the stage. Yeah. That's where I did it. And I set up that whole thing by myself with no help from the mess. So I, I left with kind of a bad taste in my mouth, you know, but I retired April 8th. Understandable. Yeah. You know, no offense to anybody. I, I'm not saying that to slag on nobody. It's just a given fact. You know, the only people at my retirement were family and those people that were part of the ceremony. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, I retired April 8th and went on terminal leave until the end of June, June 30th. So, you know, I was I was loving it. You know, April, April, what, uh, 9th, 10th, April 11th, I'm sitting in my front yard at 8 a.m. waving to people as they're going to work with a beer in hand <laughs> when I still drank, you know. Um, but the realization of, oh shit, my active duty pay is, is terminal started to hit like May 1st. Like I really need to get a job because the bills are not going to stop, even though my check went in half. <laughs> well, it actually, what people forget is it goes a lot less than half, especially for someone yeah. like you, BAH, yeah. uh, flight pay, whatever special yeah. duty pays. Well, and not only that, but because my service anniversary was June 24th, guess what I got seven days before I retired? A uniform allowance. Because <laughs> I was still on active duty. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the realization hit. And then in June, we went up to Vermont because my parents were still living up there. You know, they came down for my retirement in April and then went home and decided to buy a house down here. And, you know, June hit and it was like, oh, shit, nobody's responded to my resume. Well, here I was thinking I'm in Military City, USA. I'm a Navy chief. Somebody's going to want to hire me. Ain't the fact. For anybody listening, if they're offering you college while you're in, take it. Yes. Get your education. Get that pigskin before you, you retire because it sucks being 38 years old a retired chief been around the world and sitting in college class with a bunch of 18 year old kids whose only realization of life is 
what score they made on Warcraft. <laughs> so how was that uh, college experience? It was good, but like I said, it sucked. You know, when I retired, I first went to Park University down at uh, Lackland Air Force Base to finish out my associates. Uh, I think I needed a statistics class and an English class. So I ended up taking like women's lit or something. And so I ended up getting a, um, an associate's degree in criminal justice administration. So once my rating came through and everything, I went to the VA and attempted to get voc rehab for my bachelor's. Well, my voc rehab counselor, who will remain nameless, told me that the VA would never invest time nor money in a criminal justice degree, that it's a wasted degree, which I do not agree with. How is it? What? So I ended up, yeah, it was stupid. He was, he was an idiot. But uh, I ended up going to school and getting a bachelor's of science in management because my idea was every place has management. <laughs> and I used my Vogue rehab for that, thank God. But then I went back a couple of years after the fact and ended up getting a master's degree in adult education using my post 9-11 GI Bill. So, you know, here I am with a bachelor's in management and a master's in education and don't work in either field. <laughs> so, um, But back to your original question, I ended up going from June 30th to November 7th with no job. I was actually working part-time doing security for uh, over at the uh, AT&T Center for a security, okay, a local remember, security yeah. company uh, under yeah, a contract. You were saying that because we have a mutual friend uh, that around that same time was doing some training with the Spurs. Okay. Travis. Yeah. Yeah. Travis. Yeah, I, was, I talked I, to him I, the I other day. Remember, I was trying to remember his job description. Um he was uh, assistant strength and conditioning coach, if that's I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's what yep. it was. Um, I actually talked to Travis the other day after our meeting. <laughs> I need to get him on this. Absolutely. He'd be great to be on here, dude. Yeah, I would. So you um, so you eventually get a job with the city of San Antonio. Mm -hmm. You went back to work for the government. The municipal, yeah. Yeah. But um, so... Were you back involved with the chief's mess at that point in time when you went back to work? No, no, I, this was Oh five. So, I mean, I was, I was still, you know, full Navy. I mean, I was, I got to the point where my first boss told me, you're not in the Navy anymore. You need to, you know, understand you're, you're retired. <laughs> Nobody cares what you did in the Navy. You yeah. know, how much, of the um, bite in the, how much of the kick in the balls was that to hear that? Oh, major league one. I mean, I think they went all the way up into my throat, <laughs> but she was right. You know, I mean, my time was over. I, I elected to, uh, you know, retire. So, you know, move up, move out, get on with, with life, you know. At any point in time, did you, do you look back and ponder what 24 would have given you? Yes and no. I mean, would it have been nice to make even number chief? Absolutely. You know, you're now the middle ground of, of our brotherhood, our sisterhood. You know, you're not a chief, but you're not, you're not the top dog as a nine, you know, being middle ground would have been great, but honestly, I, I probably wouldn't change a whole lot because I wouldn't have what I have now. Um, 
I was telling my dad yesterday, if, if, if I were to change anything, when I first came in and started looking, I would have went CBs. Really? Well, I mean, okay, so let's get to that. I was going to bring that up. So <laughs> there's something about retiring as a chief, especially if you have a house, which I don't, but um, where E7s, E8s, E9s, so chiefs, senior chiefs, and master chiefs, when they retire here, they magically get into woodworking. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I know the work that you do. I know the work that some of the other chiefs do. I mean, it's not something that it seems like you would just pick up over a couple of years. Honestly, I did. Yeah. How did you get, um, how did you find woodworking? Well, uh, I think it was a conspiracy between my wife and my father. Um, when I retired, you know, I thought TV watching was a hobby, you know, and they quickly corrected me on that, calibrated me and, and got me with no, it's not. And they went out and bought me my first saw. And one thing led to another. And here we are, what? Uh, 16 years later. You know, I was actually scroll saw scroll sawing something this morning before I talked to you, <laughs> like 20 minutes before I mean we got online. And with your work, I mean, it's amazing, but we were talking. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, no problem. We were talking with the uh, select, yeah, with the selects last week mm -hmm. and it came up, I forgot whether it was you, me and Larry or just you and me talking. And you were saying that you don't have a CNC machine. None of this stuff that you do is computerized or anything. It's all by hand. I have a CNC machine, eye. but it's in a box. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> but quite put it together yet. But I mean, it's most of the, the wood, the intricate woodworking that you're doing, like these knots or these anchors, they're, you're doing it by hand and by eye, right? Absolutely. I, I joke with people. They're like, do you have a CNC? I'm like, no, I have an H&E. And they're like, what's an H&E? And I was like, hand and eye. You know, it's a scroll, yeah, I mean, variable speed scroll saw. It's crazy on how, um, how, how much you put out and how intricate some of it is. Thanks. So I'm going to jump ahead quite a bit. So okay. this past year, which I will call the year of the shit show. Yeah. I was going to say started, shit show year. <laughs> I, I'm still counting. I'm still counting this year that we're in right now is 2020. I'm not count. I'm not starting the new year until yeah, we March haven't migrated. 13th. Yeah. We're <laughs> March 13th, 2021 is day one of the new year. So, um, January, February, and the first half of March. How was that for you last year? It was normal, normal. I mean, we were just doing what, what needed to be done, you know, working five days a week in the office. And, you know, I had stopped. I stopped doing security after 12 years, so I was no longer having to do that. You know, uh, I stopped that, I think, in January of 2017. So, you know, I was just working and coming home and doing, doing what you do, you know, no, no fuss, no muss traveling, going California, Florida, you know, anybody that knows me knows I, I like my reggae. So I go to a lot of reggae festivals and stuff. So, you know, uh, my wife allows me to do such, you know, so that's what I was doing, man. Just going to shows and enjoying life. 
And, and work was, I mean, you work at a desk job in city government. So work was work, yeah. right? Work um, never slowed down. I mean, to this day, our, our, I won't get into specifically what I do, but our work never, it ramped up, if anything, believe it or not. That's what I was going to ask you later. But so to that, March 13th happens, which is when, uh, at the time, President Trump came out and said, we want to implement this 12 days to slow the spread of mm-hmm. this new virus. What happened at work? Did they immediately transfer you guys to work from home or? Um, I don't remember the exact time or date that we started working remotely from home, but we were still in the office every day. I want to say up until the end of May, early June. Oh, wow. Okay. So for you. Meeting customers, doing the do. It was business as usual. So for you guys, nothing really changed uh, Mm -hmm. during this whole slowdown, shutdown, lockdown. At the beginning, no. So did um, did you guys have any incidences in your in your general building of people getting in our sick? department? We've we've had people who have come I down mean, during, and I during, think, prior prior to being sent home. There may have been a couple, you know, maybe some field representatives and whatnot that go out and do stuff. But I mean, on my team specifically, I don't think so. I don't think we had anybody at that point. So did you foresee what was coming or did you just think, okay, two weeks, kids are out of school, spring break, they all stay home? I mean, you and I have talked about this extensively. I, at first, I thought it was just a flu, you know, I just like a lot of people, you know, it's just, it's a flu that you're going to get it and just deal with it and move on. But I mean, we've learned it's a little bit more intensive than just a flu. You know, I'm not a medical expert or anything, but. You know, so when they did send you home to work, was that before or after um, the civil unrest part of the shit show that is 2020? I want to say it was prior to the the burning and looting and the shit show that happened. Um, I think we were already working at home by then. Cause I remember I, I wasn't really going out that much. I think I was doing a pilgrimage to HEB and that was about it. I mean, I'm that guy that, you know, if you put food at Lowe's, that's the only store I need to go to. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't even think I was going to Lowe's. So as all this burning and looting was going down, we are normally, well, burning, looting, lockdown, re-lockdown, masks, blah, 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 about June, July. We're normally preparing for what we call our season. Right. When all of this started coming down the pipe, did you think we were going to lose it this season? Absolutely. I so Were you surprised? I, yeah, I thought the season was a goner. So were you surprised when uh, Russell or the McPond came back and said, no, we're not giving up on this and we're just going to push it to literally next week. So when this comes out uh, a week from tomorrow, we will we'll be done. new chiefs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So were you surprised when they pushed, when they said we're going to do it, but we're going to push it? A little bit surprised. I think pushing it was probably a good idea. Um, 
you know, the protocols that they put into place where it was over the Christmas break. Uh, so, I mean, this class this year for here in San Antonio, cause I know there's some places that have already completed the, the whole, the whole thing. Uh, these guys and gals, I think it's fortuitous because they got extra time. I mean, they were notified November 11th or November 18th. They're pinning the 29th of January. Right. That's almost, that's, that's almost 70 days, dude. I mean, that's like two and a half, almost three months. Right. Which is but typical for a reserve for the reserves. They very, very typical. Notification. Yeah. Absolutely. But, but I mean, while well, the reservists even got it sooner than November 18th, I'm talking that that was active duty was November 18th. Right. And I think the, the reservists got it around the 1st of November. Yeah. Uh, and then they went on two weeks of holiday during Christmas where it was in essence, from what I understand, hands off. Yeah. But I mean, I understand, I told, told this year's chairman, Scotty, you know, you and I have talked and I understand the protocols are in place because they can control the military. They can say, you know, if you go a set distance away from home base, you're going to go on restriction of, of movement. They can't do that with you and I or Shep right, or right. any other retiree, you know, I, so I, I, I understand was, the protocols. Yeah. What I meant was I was, I've always felt like there certain people in high up positions have been looking for a reason to change our, our thing to a classroom and then toss the anchors at them. And I figured yeah, or to make ever, it even go away. Yeah. I figured if there was ever a point in time, that would be the perfect excuse. It would have been during this pandemic. Absolutely. And Absolutely. So, so I applaud McPawn. Yeah, I'm very glad that he, that they said no. We need to keep this process going. I mean, so, it's, you and I both know. You know, the Navy's all about tradition. This yeah. is one of those traditions that people have heard about. I mean, you'll never forget that first day in boot camp when that chief comes up and gets in your face. Yep. And if if that you know if our traditions go away, what what are what's going to happen? What are we going to become? You know, the Air Force. Well, I wasn't going to say that, but you did. <laughs> I like to, I like to pick on the flyers or the hey. non-flying flyers, the drone guys, whatever you want to call them. Hey, wh whatever, whatever. So, um, we came into the new year and shit got a little weird. Do you have hope for this year? Actually, yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm the perpetual pessimist, but I, I do have some optimistic views for this year. You know, I think I think it's going to take everybody doing what needs to be done. You know, these people that just are totally against everything that anybody says just need to stay home. I mean, me and my wife were out the other day and somebody was just continually bitching about a mask. And bitching about somebody not wearing it. And eventually, I think, believe it or not, I'm going to die myself out, but I believe we're at bingo. And eventually the caller was like, listen, I can't keep making announcements for you to wear your mask. Either put it on or get out. I'm not going to keep saying this. And I think everybody in the place, for the most part, stood up and gave them a, a standing ovation. <laughs> yeah. You know, but yeah, I, I've got I've got a little bit of optimism for this year. You know, I think we could salvage it. I think that I think that there's going to be some 
tough times ahead, but I think we're ultimately going to come out better on the other side. Um, Absolutely. Whether, whether it's this well, calendar year or right. a little into 2022. Well, I mean, it's as simple as this, Tommy, is, you know, everybody wants to look at the negative side of things. And, and I'm honestly, that's been me for years, but there's been some good that came out of this whole COVID protocol stuff. You know, no, I think we, so. we have, we have learned that there's other ways to work besides being just a mindless robot going into work five days a week and sitting in a cubicle. Yeah. You know, no, definitely there. We've, we've um, learned some valuable stuff. And, and I think there's some things that we've done because of COVID that are extremely beneficial. Well, one of my hopes would be that, um, I don't have kids, so I'm, I, I may be talking out my ass a little bit, but that people who defer way too much to giving, getting their kids in school learn from the time that they had from homeschool, from basically homeschooling. Um, Absolutely. And, and had some reconnections with their children. I hope that that's yeah. taken away and maybe we have to relook at how school's done. And, much and like not relying saying, on English, the teacher to be not, not relying on the, the teacher to be the damn babysitter. Right. Because uh, like you were saying, going to school, going to work and being mindless drones. I, I have a hard time thinking that um, the current form of classroom education prior to the pandemic was nothing more than sending kids to go be mindless drones at school. Did they, learn essence, stuff? Yeah. Did they learn stuff? Yeah. But could it have been taught in a more useful way in a more productive way? Probably. And I hope we, right. I hope we go back and look at this and say, okay, we need to, we've, we're going to do a good after action report on all of this. Right. So to that, Chris, I got to ask you a final question. And I have to come up with a far less convoluted way of saying this. <laughs> so the podcast is called After the Battle Campfire, which again, like mm -hmm. I say on every show, we go back. I pulled that name from thinking about warrior cultures in the past where they would march into battle. They didn't fly home after like the SEALs. They didn't get on a helicopter and go home. They Right. Camp. They had to camp out because they fought during the day and talk shit behind around the fire at night. Absolutely. But the the channel is called the Modern Ronin. That's it, which is again touching on a very specific warrior culture where when you lost your master, you became a Ronin and you did other things. So mm -hmm. in this essence, it's more of service. So to you, what does it mean to be a modern Ronin? I mean, we've talked about this as well. You know, I, I always say our time has passed. You know, we've, we've done our active duty time. You know, we, we did the do for as many years as we did the do. It's our time to give back. You know, I've got experiences that differ from your experiences, but they're all, I want to say, prudent or, or have bearing and can help somebody. I mean, that I've just got a, an educator type of mind where, you know, I love seeing somebody's light go on above their head when they finally get it, you know, and, you know, you know, as well as I do, not everybody learns the same, you know, and people aren't right. motivated by the same ways. One, you could tell one person they can't do it. I mean, I had a lieutenant that told me I couldn't do air crew because he couldn't pass it. So I wouldn't, 
that motivated me. I wanted to send him a one, one finger wave when I, when I graduated with my aircrew wings, you know, but you know, I mean, I just think, you know, giving back and that's why I'm so happy that, you know, the command here allows, you know, old guys like you and I to, to play and be able to give these new chiefs because like we told them the other day, they're part of the past, present, and the future. Some of these cats have 20 years in the Navy already. Yeah. Some of these cats, had they not been selected for chief, would probably be walking out the door. You know, so they've got 20 years of past. They're the present because they're going through it, and we're relying on them to be the future. You know, so yeah. they can take our spots if we ever decide not to play anymore. And they can pass down the traditions because, let's face it, that's what the Navy's all about is traditions. You know, that, that is, uh, yeah, that's exactly what the Navy's about. It's, it's the maritime brotherhood and being a chief is, is a fraternity inside the fraternity. Well, on that note, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. And it, dude, we've done two hours and 59 minutes. Wow, dude. Um, yeah. I can't thank you, man. I love watching these. Um, you know, I know it took us a good while to get together and do this. I thank you for uh, allowing me to be on. Um, you're, you're a hell of an interviewer, dude. Thank you, man. Thank <laughs> you. And, and when, when I can set it up, I'm going to start to do some in-house. Okay. So I want Perfect. you to come back. Um, just got to find a place where I can do it. Yeah, there you go. This place is not the place. Anyways, <laughs> you guys, thank you for listening. And Chris, thank you again. All right, brother. Hey, I'll see you in, uh, later this week. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01, and you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.